Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. were left alive yeah. in Korea after the war was over. And uh, the figure was that 8,000 were not returned. Do you believe there's sufficient evidence to make a finding that Americans were transferred from Korea to either China or the Soviet Union? Apparently, yes. Uh, it's time for you people to come up here and accept that evidence and begin to move to the next step which is to find out what happened to these people and where they are. It's a tremendous shame for any country to think that they left its, its people behind. My name is Bob Dumas. I'm from Canterbury, Connecticut. I was a Korean War veteran, two tours of duty in Korea. I had four brothers in the front line at one time. My youngest brother was captured on November 4th, 1950 at Andrew, northeast of Andrew, right up here on the map. We used to play in a tank, an old World War II tank in town, that was a monument. We used to come out of school every afternoon, Catholic school, to jump on the tank, they believe we were the soldiers. I played along with him because that's what he wanted. And I think that's where he got the idea to be in the service, was uh, playing around in that tank. Oh, uh, he was a real, real funny guy, real sociable person, uh, a likable guy, uh, always uh, 
doing some kind of pranks. He liked to do a lot of gestures with his hands, you know, like making a duck on a wall and things of that nature. He used to have a, a routine, uh, like with the song, Me and My Shadow. I remember that very distinctly. I remember many times when we were on a ship uh, heading to Korea. It was scary, you know. June 25, 1950, the North Korean communists attacked the Republic of Korea without warning or justification. One of history's most important questions faced the world. Would free nations under the flag of the United Nations band together to halt that aggression? The first year in Korea has provided the answer. With men and materiel, the free nations have proven that they will. Bob served two tours of duty in Korea, hoping to find Roger. In 1953, Bob, along with his older brothers, Bill and Ted, who were also serving in Korea, returned home with no news about their youngest sibling. A year after the war ended, Roger and over 8,000 other American MIAs were declared missing, presumed dead. She had called me over, and I was standing at the foot of the bed with my wife, and uh, she says, Keep looking for your brother because he's still alive. I still see him as being alive. So I made a promise to her then and there. I keep looking for, for him for the rest of my life. And that's exactly what I did. I kept that promise. For the next 25 years, Bob appealed to Pentagon and government officials for information about his brother. Finally, he received an answer from the Army. It was at the car they sent me and said that his records were burnt in a fire in 1973. All records were burnt on Korean War, missing in action, which was a total lie I found out many years later. Bob's exhaustive investigation revealed that his brother Roger had in fact been a POW and was known to be alive when the war ended in 1953. The Pentagon vehemently denied that Roger was ever a POW. After thousands of meetings and phone conversations with government officials, Bob finally landed a meeting with President Reagan, arranged by Senator Strom Thurmond. Bob briefly met the president, but then spent the next 90 minutes in a contentious meeting with the National Security Advisor, Admiral James Bud Nance. He said, well, well, we don't want to start a war over this, you know. I said, I don't think by sitting down and negotiating with the North Koreans for live Americans from the Korean War that you're going to start a war over this. And I said, well, it's just my next step would be to go into federal court. And he said, you don't want to do that. He said, if you go into federal court, you're going to embarrass the president and the nation. I said, I don't think I'll embarrass anybody. Maybe we'll get to the truth of what happened to these men. The U.S. Army vigorously attempted to discredit Bob's lawsuit during a year of pretrial hearings. On July 19, 1983, Bob finally was given the chance to present his evidence that Roger was a prisoner of war. If successful, Bob was certain his unprecedented case would force the Army to investigate Roger's disappearance in North Korea. I'd have to go to federal court to prove he was a prisoner. They knew that I couldn't prove it in federal court because no one had ever gone through a court in this country, in the history of this country, to get the status change to prisoner of war for missing an action. There were various motions that the government was making to keep it from going to trial. 
We are in agreement that every effort to keep this matter out of the public eye should be made. It is clear from your memo that you wish no additional information provided to the Justice Department. It is also my understanding from a conversation of the litigation division that the Army will not turn over documents that Dumas is seeking under a court order. Because of the nature of this case and the undesirable precedent that might occur, your course of action seems appropriate. Although too ill to travel, ex-POW George Rogers provided a deposition and identified Roger Dumas and POW camp photos that Bob had managed to obtain. The government uh, contested those pictures and said that they weren't uh, Roger Dumas at all, they were some, somebody else. And at the deposition, the U.S. attorney beautifully opened the envelope uh, and for the first time exposed Rogers to these pictures. And the question was, could you pick out the individual whom you remember or recall seeing in Camp 5? And his finger went to Roger Dumas. It was a very uh, important turning point in the case because it, 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 it lended great credibility to, to Bob's uh, photographs. George Rogers called me one night and said, he said, did you know that Freddie Fred Hart died, died of a heart attack? I said, it seems like all these guys are dying of heart attacks, George. He said, yeah, isn't that un- unusual? He says everybody's dying of a heart attack. He said, but I don't believe he died of a heart attack. I think something else is going on here. There was this sort of dark cloud you know, that would hang over our witnesses, uh, which was somewhat disconcerting. Lloyd Pate was the only ex-POW witness able to testify in court. While he was sequestered in a waiting room, he was confronted by a Pentagon officer who threatened to make public damaging information about his mother's past. I told him, I said, hey, bring it all out. She's dead. What harm can you do to her? And you sure as hell can't hurt me. And why wouldn't you want this to come out? I said, the truth never hurt anybody. That story, again, held, I think, the entire courtroom for probably the better part of an afternoon uh, in complete and utter, utter silence. I mean, you can hear the ticking of a clock. Over 50% of the men at Camp 5 died from starvation, exposure, uh, intestinal parasites, uh, disease, because there was no medical care there and very little food, no warmth, uh, so everything was against you. He would carry six soldiers into a, a storage facility to die, essentially, uh, because they couldn't bury them. In the wintertime, once they died, they'd stack them up like cordwood. Uh, and he went into one of these, uh, what was then a, a lean-to, and uh, discovered uh, an individual who was lying there unconscious. I had no idea at all that he would uh, survive because he had a chunk of flesh missing out of his side between his ribs and his hip hip bone, uh, larger than your fist. And uh, it had done turn black. And uh, everybody was stinking. Everybody felt that he he wasn't going to last. So I had nothing to lose. 
and he uh I had been told that he was uh had been part of the twenty fourth division. So I went into a latrine bathroom, toilet, whatever you want to call it, and I scooped down in there and got some uh, maggots and packed them in there and covered it over with a cloth, and I forgot about him. And four or five months later, he met him on the Yellow River where they were bathing, and this soldier came up with a T-shirt on that they gave him with his name Dumas on it, D-U-M-A-S. And he says, uh, do you remember putting maggots? And a man shot. I sort of laughed. I said, yeah. He said, well, I'm that man. Providing a deposition for the court, former POW, Ciro Santo, stated he was with Roger the day he was left behind. I didn't see him until Freedom Bridge. And that's when we saw a group of GIs being taken away from the Chinese. And Dumas was in that crowd. I said, well, he was in a camp with me. He was alive. He was being repatriated. I mean, he came south. He went north. So several months later, I received a, a certificate from the Army, Secretary of the Army, John Marsh, where they changed the status to prisoner of war. But then they did presume them dead again. with a slap in the face by saying, look, yeah, okay, we'll, find, we'll, we'll, we'll make the finding that he, he was a prisoner of war, but now consider the fact closed because there's a presumptive finding of death and there's no point going any further. A 1954 Pentagon memo from the Assistant Secretary of the Army gives a chilling account of the decision to invoke the Missing Persons Act. It states, a further complicating factor in the situation is that to continue to carry these personnel in a missing status is costing over $1 million annually. It may become necessary at some future date to drop them from our records as missing and presumed dead. And, and his point was, why did the U.S. government in 1954 declare all these guys dead? They just presumed them all dead. Um, and I think there's always been an undercurrent in this country that of, of we left these guys there. It's a weird, it's a weird logic they have. Okay. They'll keep somebody like Roger Dumas in the MIA status because if they make him a POW, that means he's left behind. The North Korean communists were caught in a giant nutcracker formed by the UN forces in the North and the UN forces in the South. The closing of that nutcracker brought red resistance in the Republic of Korea virtually to an end. Seoul was liberated in fierce street-to-street fighting. This capital city once with a population of a million five hundred thousand persons, had suffered terribly during its brief period under communist rule. It became the first national capital since World War II to be wrested from the hands of a red invader. nobody but a brother of a prisoner who was uh, still left in North Korea. But he took enough calm, he had enough confidence in me to know that I was dealing with the issue. And the issue was in federal court, which they understood in this country. So um, what I did was I contacted the government and told them that I was talking to the North Korean ambassador. He wanted to talk about American POW, but they did not want to talk to him. Mr. Dumas, you, you have done something that I have done uh, uh, on several occasions, which is to meet 
one-on-one -on -one person with North Koreans rather than having going through the, the military armistice commander. But what what is your reaction to the people that you have talked with in terms of their resolve here? Well, I've had 19 meetings with them in person, and I've had 250 phone calls, all tape recorded, if anybody wants to listen to them, with the ambassadors, and they allowed me to do this. They have never wavered from the issue of POWs and MIAs, and they've never asked for any money. They've never asked for anything but someone like you. You were the first man to walk into North Korea and the history of the North Korean government, a senator, a United States senator, and you talked with these people. So if you can talk with them, why can't the President of the United States talk with them, or the Vice President of the United States, or the Secretary of Defense, or the Secretary of State? This is all they ever said all these years. One-on-one. -on -one. You know, you, you speak to them. You know how they are. They're one-on-one. -on -one. In 1987, when Jesse Jackson was running for president, Bob arranged a meeting between the Reverend and North Korean Ambassador Park Gil-young. Reverend Jackson bluntly asked the ambassador about American POWs being held in North Korea. He said, I'm running for president of the United States. I would like to come to your country only on one condition. If there are any live Americans from the Korean War still in your country, I would like to come there and discuss that situation with your country on a humanitarian basis, nothing else, just on a humanitarian basis. And it would be good for both our countries if we could discuss this issue in your country. And Ambassador uh, Pack said, yes, it would be good for my country also. He said, I would agree to that. Despite his awareness of the government's attempt to stop Bob's investigation, Jackson called Secretary of State James Baker to inform him of their plan to visit North Korea. I told him in that room, think about it, Reverend. You just screwed up the whole meeting for us. Four days later, Jackson's Rainbow Coalition informed Bob that the Christmas Eve trip to North Korea to negotiate for live American POWs was canceled because the State Department levied travel sanctions on North Korea. Never heard another word. That was the end of it. The heated discussion of procedure for exchange and repatriation of prisoners of war in Korea continues to be one of the main stumbling blocks in the peace negotiations at Panmunjom. Here is a batch of communist prisoners of war just captured by United Nations forces. It is completely evident that they are dirty and unkempt, no matter how well armed they have been by their red masters. Many have been unwillingly conscripted into the communist hordes, trying to overwhelm the Republic of Korea. In United Nations prisoner of war camps, they are rehabilitated and extended every possible comfort. Physical cleanliness and adequate supplies are provided for both North Korean and Chinese captives. Each prisoner is identified, and the camp itself is well marked, so marauding enemy planes make no mistake. This is apparently in sharp contrast to communist camps where we have been accused of bombing our own men. The International Red Cross has asked repeatedly for permission to inspect communist prisoner of war camps where United Nations soldiers are held until negotiations for release can be concluded. The Reds have refused neutral Red Cross representatives access to such camps. The United Nations offers each prisoner an opportunity to choose his own future. He would not be compelled to rejoin the Reds. This freedom the enemy refuses to sanction.
For several years after the Korean War, the issue of abandoned POWs weighed heavily on the minds of government officials. First at the United Nations, U.S. Ambassador Henry Cabot Lodge Jr. addressed the General Assembly, demanding the release of POWs still being held by North Korea and China, and a full accounting of over 3,000 U.N. command POWs that were not repatriated after the war. Nearly four years later, House Resolution 292 was brought before Congress. It stated in part, It is the sense of the Congress that the President should make the return of the 450 American prisoners of war still imprisoned by communist forces, the foremost objective of the foreign policy of the United States. On March 2, 1957, as the Senate was deliberating on the same issue, Senator John F. Kennedy stated that the repatriation of these abandoned POWs was our government's top priority. JFK's passion for this issue continued when he was president. On October 11, 1961, the president proclaimed ongoing negotiations for the release of the POWs. We have been meeting periodically for the last three or four years for a period at Geneva, and of course most recently at Warsaw, in which we talk about the question of the exchange of prisoners, or rather the release of prisoners, and other matters. With JFK's assassination, hopes of repatriating the abandoned Korean War POWs faded. Twenty-eight years later, the U.S. Senate minority staff would investigate the persistent live sighting reports of American POWs in North Korea and hundreds more abandoned in Southeast Asia after the Vietnam War. The results of the investigation were contained in a report entitled, An Examination of U.S. Policy Toward POW MIAs. The claims made by the minority report of abandoned POWs and subsequent government malfeasance sent shockwaves through the Senate. And what we found was that there was an overabundance of information that indicated there were people left behind and that there seemed to be a concerted effort on the part of the intelligence community and the administration, whichever administration was in power at the time. And it, and it spanned both Democrats and Republicans. It was by no means a one-party issue. What we, what we showed was that in every instance where they could disclaim the information, there was an effort to do so without giving the benefit of the doubt. And... We felt that the reason for that was simply because it was an embarrassment to the whole government. This report received a wide distribution among the official community in Washington, all the diplomatic and attaches around Washington. It was the most distributed report that the Senate has ever done. I understand it was, in, it was serialized in the Soviet Union. Through Dan Perrin's efforts, we got probably a million copies out there one way or another. While the Senate minority staff was investigating abandoned POWs, Colonel Millard Peck, the Pentagon's chief of the Special Office for POW MIAs, resigned with a parting volley of venomous criticism of the Defense Department's POW MIA investigation. Millard Peck was a, a Special Forces officer, highly decorated. I think he was awarded the Distinguished Service Cross twice. And he actually volunteered for this position because he was so concerned about POWs and thought he was a, an honorable way to uh, uh, spend a couple of years in the Pentagon. But see, they put a colonel in there that decided he would end his career with a real honorable, intensive investigation to try and solve this. And he just ran into one stone wall after another. 
after two years, he was so disgusted with the manner in which the whole issue was being handled that he wrote about a five or six page memorandum. The the one catchphrase in his uh, resignation, the tawdry illusion of progress. There's all this motion, people running around, they're sending investigators here, they're sending investigators here, but they don't know the right questions, they don't speak the language where they're going, Uh, they have no uh, ability to enforce or to require answers, and it's all the tawdry illusion of progress. And he took that memorandum and he took his dagger out of his sheath and stabbed it through the memorandum on the door of his office and walked out of the Pentagon and never returned. Well, the government was not happy with it. And, of course, they said it was not true, so we asked them to show us where it was wrong. One of the people, top people on the NSC was involved. He paid a visit to Jesse Helms and basically said, these people have got to go. Senator Helms appoints Nance, his chief of staff. He goes back to Washington, fires the entire damn committee. He felt this needed to happen and that he thanked us for what we did, that this was, this was, we were being let go for the good of the country. And that was it. He said for national security reasons. Which is most interesting. <laughs> I basically said, what is this guy saying? And it, to me, it was a cop-out. It was a sell-out. National security is when you're protecting the United States. What they're doing is protecting individuals, and it doesn't have a damn thing to do with national security. Fired the, uh, Senator Helms' chief of staff of 26 years, fired him, and he is virtually running Senator Helms' office now. When he was in the White House, he hosed down POW uh, uh, investigations, uh, especially the mission that was directed by Bo Gritz. Uh, so he had a, a, a vested interest in shutting down anything to do with POWs. As a result of the report, the Senate felt compelled to set up a select committee, and uh, that it took them nine months to set up the committee, mainly because of the opposition of uh, uh, Senator McCain, who was bitterly opposed to any attempt to find the POWs which is remarkable seeing that he was a POW himself. Information shows that he made over 32 tapes of uh, propaganda for the Vietnamese government. Certainly you do what you need to do to stay alive. Nobody would fault anybody for that. But there comes a point in time where enough is enough. He made those transcriptions, and in the transcriptions, I heard a POW who heard them coming into his cell and said, oh, my God, is that Admiral McCain's son? Is that the Admiral's son? Is that Johnny? Telling us that our principal targets are schools, orphanages, hospitals, temples, churches. That was Jane Fonda's line. Where are those transcriptions? That stuff is still classified, so nobody can see it. And he just had it classified forever, so nobody will ever look at it. One of the things that happened with that bill is that we were submarined. The House side, we passed it uh, with no, no, I don't believe anybody opposed it. It was a, it was a pretty much unanimous vote. Um, but on the Senate side, we had, we had one person standing in the way of getting in positions that would have been very tough on government bureaucrats who didn't tell the truth. And that one person was Senator John McCain. John McCain um, uh, and John Kerry both were um, not pursuing this at the, 
with the same uh, approach that I was. He insisted that no committee be set up unless he was chairman. Obviously, his intent was to kill everything. Okay. Uh, I appreciate you inviting me here. But what I don't understand is that you're supposed to have a committee of 12. <laughs> all my congressmen from Connecticut walked out. Uh, all the senators, uh, senators around that town, they all walked away. McCain took off. Kerry took off. All that evidence was coming out in Korea because they knew that if they came and listened to the truth, they'd have to keep the hearings open. They didn't want any information. So they weren't interested in doing anything with the information other than trying to discredit it. North Korea did not return a large number of American servicemen at the end of the war, and that some of the men left behind were sent to communist China and to the Soviet Union. Internal documents and statements made at the time also show that our government believed that men were still alive in captivity, and until only a few months ago has kept that reality from the American people. It has covered up what it knew through a pattern of denial, misleading statements, in some cases lies, and by doing so with regard to the Korean conflict, it broke its commitment with the people who put on the uniform to fight for the freedoms and protection that we and our allies enjoy today. What I found interesting was that coincidental to Kerry running the committee, Vietnam gave to Kerry's family sole rights for the negotiation of all real estate issues within, within Vietnam. Shelling is concentrated on communist forces entrenched in hillside foxholes. The desired result is soon effected. Driven out, red prisoners of war display safe conduct flags as the shooting war goes on. The captured grows. More of the enemy surrender each day, swelling the total of those who may be exchanged for United Nations troops now in enemy prison camps. Not all are taken alive. <laughs> Prisoners en route to hospitals receive merciful treatment from UN captors. Their power to kill and maim spiked communist weapons are added to the enormous total already in allied hands. Also testifying before the Senate Select Committee was retired Army Colonel Philip Corso a former member of the National Security Council who served as President Eisenhower's POW-MIA liaison. Colonel Corso verified that thousands of American POWs were abandoned in North Korea. Uh, do you have any comments on what you heard, especially relating to the numbers left behind and unaccounted for? I have no fault with that 8,000 numbers. That was our estimate that we made over there at the time, that they were never returned, so they were left behind. Colonel Corso then dropped a bomb that stunned and angered Senate committee members 
when he admitted that President Eisenhower approved the recommendation to leave the POWs behind. I want to get this record straight on exactly what happened. Okay. Because there's a lot of speculation on what happened there, and a lot of people are coming on, but there was only three of us present. Unfortunately, the president died. C.D. Jackson, my superior, passed away. I was the only one left that was actually there. I know what happened, and I will tell you what happened without any speculation. The president was in the Oval Office, the three of us. And I saw him, and he said, I understand you have a report on prisoners of war going to the Soviet Union. I guess that's what I'm here for. So I compiled this report, not only here, but information in Korea, which I said before, that close to 1,200, we suspect, but about 900 certain that did go there. Our information is, is solid. You made a very direct statement twice under oath. You know, Eisenhower made the decision. He was told specifically these men were abandoned. We knew they'd been moved over there. And yes, it would be very difficult to get them back. That was the recommendation that he accepted and said not to tell the families at the time. For me to assume that he would say to, to 1,200 families, I'm sorry, but we're not going to tell you anything about the fact that your loved ones may be alive, strains my imagination, and I appreciate it. Well, sir, it possibly does, but it was against the policy. The policy was thou shalt not confront the communists. That was White House policy. That was national policy. And that was the policy that Corso explained very clearly in his testimony. He said... You know, the current policy prevented you from saying anything strident about the Soviets. Uh, you couldn't demand anybody back. You couldn't go public. You couldn't do anything. U.S. policy forbid it. U.S. policy tied our hands. Which was, U.S. policy was? Policy was the Soviet Union, North Koreans, and the Chinese are not co-conspirators, and we will not, not make strident statements to antagonize them but the big policy was the policy of fear, fear of general war. That was the policy that was stopping us. Our policy was fear of general war. Fear of general war. And, sir, I have the policy numbers there in my statement. Uh, Colonel Joe Schlater, November 9, 1989. There is no evidence to suggest that any U.S. personnel were not released from captivity in Korea. And that's just, I mean, I, I just don't understand people in responsible positions coming up here to the Hill and saying that, that, that kind of thing. And I, I, don't want, I don't want to dispute it because I've been through that for eight years with you people. I don't have desire to dispute it. As I said in my opening statement, the facts speak for themselves, the evidence speaks for themselves and it's itself, and I, it's time for you people to come up here and accept that evidence and begin to move to the next step, which is to find out what happened to these people and where they are. That's what we've got to start doing. So why don't you just admit that you've got the evidence? I know for a fact that, uh, from my perspective, the job was not done. We didn't finish the investigation. Corso was one that should have been pursued more, and uh, we, didn't, we didn't get it done. It was a good old boys system that did what they needed to do. They cleared the decks. They moved on. I'm sure that, that they still continue to do each other favors, except for Smith, who's now out.
Greetings on the Korean front, sound the keynote, and echo the stalemate around the world in 1951. More than a million red casualties and 100,000 allied marked the second year of conflict which saw General MacArthur relieved of his post as Commander-in-Chief of the Far East, raising a storm of controversy over the nation. He was succeeded by General Matthew B. Ridgway, who undertook the difficult task of facing the hordes of Chinese Reds. America was stunned by reports of the mass murders of 5,500 of their own war prisoners slaughtered in cold blood behind communist lines. Stalemate was again the word for truce negotiations after more than 150 sessions between United Nations top-level officers and their red opposite numbers. The only conclusion reached definitely in the tent at Panmunjom with the communist representatives was the establishment of a buffer zone two and one half miles wide extending along the present battle zone above the 38th parallel. It was the entering wedge in the deadlock which has marked the Korean struggle since the United Nations undertook its police action in the Far East.
and had identified people who would corroborate what he with what he said, had identified documents, had identified photographs of American POWs taken in Czechoslovakia. And the last thing in the world anybody wanted was to have that information surface. They were not happy with him being there. That was the only witness that they were really, that I know of, that they were really very quite upset about, worried a little bit about what he might say. Over his time, he had been called to testify uh, six times, and each time, just before he was supposed to schedule to appear, uh, the testimony had been shut down and canceled by people in the administration. He was committed to testifying, and uh, what I did that morning was I kind of uh, kept him sequestered. I hid him in our office, and um, when people came around looking for him or they were, you know, asking questions, I just, you know, didn't comply and felt that it was important that he not be tampered with as a witness. He was threatened three times. I think the testimony was on Tuesday, as I recall. He was threatened on, on Thursday and then over the weekend and in terms of a written note, and then he was test threatened again in a phone call the morning of the testimony. And the essence of it was, if you testify, we'll kill you. He was dead a year later. But there, were, there was pressure on all of us. And I have to say that the pressure was partly something that we don't that fiercely defended itself. It exposes the, the 
equally bad crime of our political leaders in looking the other way when they abandoned these men, knowing precisely what was going to be happening to them. As Phil Chenery says in his book, Korean Atrocities, that was the greatest atrocity of all. Now, suppose this had gotten out to the American people. There'd have been such a hue and cry about that. Why did we leave our sons over there to go through that hell for the rest of their life? You know, that would be devastating to people. We would have to rewrite history. I think it's safe for the American government to find remains of POWs because the remains cannot talk or show anger. Remains are important. I'm not discrediting that. But I feel that we should be also or primarily asking about live Americans in North Korea. No, actually, the, the pursuit of live Americans is our number one priority uh, ahead of that of pursuing the recovery of remains. Several reasons, of course, there may be lives at stake. They have never admitted that there are live Americans in North Korea. We need to be careful that uh, what some people might call a prisoner of war, other people would call uh, defectors. They always say that, yes, those are the men that defected. Obviously, the United States government's policy is to bring Americans home, to account for them if they're POWs. Bloodstained years end as the last round is fired in Korea. Under terms of the truce, work proceeds rapidly on the dismantling of fortifications and the removal of all weapons from the demilitarized zone. But though the guns are stilled, there are grisly reminders of the struggle. The inevitable wreckage of war strews the battered landscape as the welcome work of truce goes forward. For the first time, U.N. soldiers can relax in clear sight of the enemy who is doing a little relaxing himself. The quiet is music to their ears, and even Akame knows good trumpet playing when he hears it. Maybe this is the red strut. All along the 125-mile front, faces are wreathed in smiles. The long days and weeks of tension are passed as unit after unit moves to rear areas. This is a time when packs and equipment are lighter by pounds. The long struggle ended when UN officers entered the now historic truce building at Moon Jum, where red opposite numbers prepare to sign the truce terms, which were almost two years in the making. With final details ironed out, the documents are handed to UN negotiators for signature. Thirty copies of each document are signed and exchanged. With the fighting over, the first and most pressing step is the exchange of prisoners, and an LST debarks a contingent of fanatic Chinese captives who, in a last defiant gesture, rip their uniforms to shreds. They're followed by North Korean Reds, smartly dressed and well-drilled, who march snappily to the train which will take them to the exchange point. Under terms of the truce agreement, all prisoners must be exchanged within 90 days after the signing. After running its grim course, the Korean War grinds to a halt. 
Pentagon analyst In Sung Lee distributed an internal report in 1996 documenting credible intelligence reports and his personal interviews with eyewitnesses of live American POWs in North Korea. In Sung Lee's efforts were far more impressive and meaningful in terms of, you know, there are between 10 and 16 or whatever it is, people that he believes are there, possibly as many as 100. And maybe it's because of the tremendous credibility of his efforts getting over there, talking to people, reading, speaking the language. That's why he's possibly been reassigned out of the POWMIA area. Uh, yes, I remember when uh, when that report was issued, and uh, some people seized on it as uh, the absolute perfect answer to a lot of questions, but in actuality it was one analyst's view of, uh, of an issue doesn't always match what another analyst's view would be. The, the thing that's so impressed me about him was that he was great for us, and the press were learning things, the families were happy, but the attitude across the Potomac and the Pentagon was, why is he doing this to us? You know, like, why is he doing this credible investigative work and building this case study, uh, this is hurting us. Kind of like that congressman that leaned over, you're starting to hurt me now, Bob. You're making me look bad. He's making us look bad. In his report, In Sung Lee states, there are too many live sagging reports of Americans in North Korea to dismiss that there are no American POWs still being held against their will. All of the reports, all of the investigations, everything that we have had as a result of our efforts in North Korea have not indicated that there are, in fact, live Americans currently being held against their will in North Korea. The negative reaction to his report forced In Sung Lee to leave the Pentagon POW MIA office. He is now Chief of Operations at Homeland Security. Today, In Sung Lee continues to stand by his Pentagon report of live American POWs in North Korea. In 1997, when my family was involved in rescuing my uncle and his family from North Korea, at that time we had heard from our guides who, were, um, who had access into North Korea that they had heard that there are POWs still living in North Korea. However, they, they said that they wouldn't be situated, located near Pyongyang, the capital. Um, they're in they're in kind of like rural farm, farming areas in the more poverty-stricken areas. A former Romanian engineer now living in Connecticut read in the Hartford Current about Bob's search for his brother and called the newspaper to report seeing American POWs while on a sightseeing tour in North Korea. All of Romania in the bus uh, so the around 50 uh, people with faces, uh, Caucasian faces. Bob arranged for Sirban Oprika to testify before the U.S. Senate Select Committee on POW MIAs. The night before Oprika testified, he was held under hostile interrogation by FBI agents until his appearance before the committee. I was a security, I was almost 
blackout. I know what to talk and how to speak. Caucasian sites, and behind them, I saw more people working in the the camp. What? Well, how were they dressed and were they guarded? Well, it, uh, they were dressed with uh, no Korean dress, uh, like like they are uh, POW. American POW. You were told these other folks were American POWs that you saw? Yes. Yeah. In the past several years, many North Korean defectors have reported the existence of American POWs in the DPRK. In 2003, North Korean defector Kim Jong, a former lieutenant colonel in the North Korean Intelligence Service, arrived in the United States with information about American POWs in North Korean labor camps. He said that President Kim Il-sung put them in the camp and forced them to work to make them see how quickly the land of North Korea, which they had tried to occupy, would be developed. The former North Korean Army General told Kim that there were many other American and British POWs in the labor camps. Every defector, every escapee who comes out of the North, to date, none of them have provided any credible evidence uh, to substantiate live Americans being held against their will in North Korea. I can tell you that I'm 99.9% certain that there were live Americans in North Korea when I was there. Um, this is a tape, okay, about the U.S. government turning down, okay, the opportunity, okay, to rescue seven live Americans. And they negotiated for several months between South Korea, North Korea, and the White House. And they were meeting back and forth in his restaurant, not at the White House, but in his restaurant. So on the last day that they would negotiate for the prisoners, he called uh, Colonel Pritchard. Jack Pritchard, okay, in the White House, and President Clinton, their boss, did not want to negotiate for POWs with the North Koreans when the North Koreans were highly motivated, okay, to give us those men back. But immediately, um, the State Department and the executive branch came out with the information that uh, this offer of live Americans was not a credible offer because it didn't come through, quote, the normal channels. Many, many communiques, many deals, many treaties did not start through normal diplomatic channels. If I were president and somebody told me they had six Americans or seven Americans, I'd talk with them. Now, Tom, the thing to do is just to let's hash it out. I said, we'll get the field deductions on the table, and you'll be able to negotiate for them. I said, but, you know, my government's not open to it yet. No, we're certainly not. About two months later, I get a call back, and Jack Pritchard is now ambassador to North Korea. Don't tell me how we can have an ambassador in North Korea when we don't have an embassy in North Korea. But anyway, he's back there. They never go away. The bad guys never go away. Operation Blackout. 
Operation Big Switch swings into high as each day is a receiving center at Panmunjom. Despite their harrowing ordeal, some summon the strength to wave as Freedom nears and Allied officers await them. Some leap from the trucks at the sight of Freedom Gate, but there are others not so fortunate, those who bear the testimonial of wounds and neglect in the red prison camps. Others are completely dazed and are restrained from jumping blindly, unable to comprehend it all. South Koreans, most of whom were brutally maltreated by their captors, are delirious with joy as they reach the haven of Freedom Village. It is a poignant scene with peaks of happiness, followed swiftly by those bearing the indelible marks of their recent nightmare. Men who have lost limbs through barbarous neglect in the bitter cold of the Manchurian winters. Rugged Turkish soldiers whose faces mirror the horror of their treatment at the hands of the Reds. The most seriously disabled are rushed to the helicopter landing area or transfer to base hospitals. We go to North Korea and we go, you don't have POWs, do you? Well, you're giving them the message. You don't have POWs. I think we also owe it to the active duty service personnel who are on the armed forces now that we not put them into a situation where countries know that if they are snatched, that they will in fact be used uh, and bartered for uh, by the United States in our foreign relations. Uh, we have seen this, and we've had a standing uh, policy over the years not to negotiate uh, in that regard. How anybody can be asked to put the uniform on today and be told that you're going to be left on a battlefield somewhere, dead or alive, it's just not right. In recent years, several South Korean POWs captured during the Korean War have escaped from North Korea. And I think you have the same potential uh, respecting Americans that would be present up there. And that one way or another, something could work to free them. Well, the only thing working against any of these men being alive today is the passage of time. But it would take a, one of two things, it seems, would have to happen. Either it would have to require a private initiative, which was orchestrated without anybody in the government ever knowing about it, or else it would have to have been done with the the assistance of North Korean officials who wanted to embarrass the government for one reason or another. There's no, there's no passion now for it. There's no passion in, gover in government for it. And um, we can't, if we really believe that we leave no soldier behind, then we should have that passion, and uh, particularly in the military. And they should be, and we all should be, and the public should be pushing and demanding that they get the answers. If we don't do something now, if we don't get the government to make this the highest national priority, in the POW issue, people that work the POW issue and the families, when they say that phrase, they laugh. It is a joke. It is a phrase used by politicians on Memorial Day and Veterans Day, and they give it no meaning because they put no force behind it. It takes long enough, nobody will be alive to answer the question anyway. Nobody will come home 
everybody associated with Korea will be dead, and there won't be any answers. That's what the CIA agent told me one time here at my house, right here, right in this room. When they're all dead, there won't be no answers. Some couldn't walk off the huge stratofreighter, but their stretchers had a new sense of security, as they were whisked to waiting ambulances in friendly hands among friendly faces, and above all, the feel of American soil beneath them. Yes, they had come home, and it had been a long way, and they brought with them the cruel brands of war and imprisonment. Even as they arrived in San Francisco, arrangements were underway to take them to their hometowns in New York. The arrival of a transport plane in one of the world's busiest airports brings out the press in force as Juan Osario Menendez of Puerto Rico is first of the repatriated prisoners to reach New York and the welcoming arms of his mother, his wife, and the welcome sight of the baby he'd never seen. This was reunion in New York for one who had lived many more than his 22 years. It's a heart ripper. Is there a chance for this boy who was in combat at 17 years of age? And it was a POW through his late teen years, 18, 19, 20, and was helping and helped other people survive. And was on a truck heading for freedom a month after the Eisenhower force ceasefire. Witnesses saw guards come up in order. Roger Lewis and a few others off the truck marching back into the uh, compound area, never to be heard from again. I used to dream of uh, waking up one morning and, and, and picking up Time magazine with the, and on the front page is a POW from Korea alive and coming home. I mean, it was just, I just think, you know, how, how, what a tremendous story that would be. The same picture you're looking at here when he was 17. He's now 61, but he's still young enough to play ball, like me. So I'm hoping that I get the invitation that we've asked for to bring him home myself. I'm not waiting any longer after 42 years. I will bring him home. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to put this medal on him when I get there. Because this belongs to him, not me. Thank you very much.
City Micro Radio. This is Biz along with Harry. And our guest for today's show is Bob Dumas, Korean War Army veteran. He is one of four brothers who served with the Army during the Korean War. Bob has come on today to uh, talk about one of his brothers, whom the Pentagon says was captured by communist Chinese and was never heard from again. And thank you, Bob, for being with us today. I'm glad to be here. Will you give us the uh, setup as to all that took place and uh, what has led you on this, uh, this journey to this very day? Well, 1950, it was captured by the Chinese north of Anjou, which is North Korea, near the Yellow River. And uh, 1953, we hadn't heard any word from him since uh, he was captured in 1950. So in 1953, when I came back from Korea, I told my mother, I said, I'll look for him the rest of my life to find out what really happened to him. So when the last list of names came on television in 1953 in September, his name wasn't listed on there. So I started in 1953 really looking for him, <clears throat> writing to Washington, uh, making phone calls all over the place. Everything was classified <clears throat> until 1965 when the Freedom of Information Act was available. And through my senator from Connecticut and a couple of congressmen, I was able to uh, cut some red tape and get some information out of the Pentagon. And one of the, some of the information I got out of the Pentagon was a couple of names of two ex-POWs from Seattle, Washington, who I contacted through my through these congressmen and senator. They gave me his phone number, and both of them told me that they were with him in a prison camp in 1950 to 53. And I uh, didn't hear any more after that. I kept in touch with these two ex-POWs. They told me what it was like in the camp, how my brother was treated, how they were treated. And uh, <clears throat> when they were released in 1953, he wasn't with them. So... Uh, 1981, I went into federal court and sued the government and sued the president of the United States for a status change. The federal judge threw that out and allowed me to sue the secretary of the army, which I did. And I won my case. They changed it from missing, presumed dead, to prisoner of law. But then again, they presumed him dead again without telling me anything other than he was being presumed dead again after I proved that he was a prisoner of law. So... uh, Anyway, in 1985, when they uh, sent me the certificate that he was a prisoner of war, I thought that that was the end of it with those people in Washington, but it wasn't. Things kept getting hotter and hotter all the time, and finally the Pentagon informed me a couple of years ago that he was taken away by Chinese guards in 1953 at the time of of, uh, Operation uh, Freedom in 1953. And so they took him away, but we didn't know where they took him. They sent him to China. Soviet Union or have him in North Korea. In 1987, I got a phone call from Seattle, Washington, from an ex-POW who said that he was with him in a camp in 1953, and when he was released, he saw him being taken away by Chinese guards, and he said, where are you going? And he just put his hands up and didn't know where. But the same guy that told me this said he was captured again a second time in 1957 when he went back to Korea for another tour of duty on the 38th parallel. He was captured a second time. They brought him back to uh, the capital of Pyongyang, the North Koreans, and he saw my brother there in 1957, which was four years after the war. So uh, that's where we stand today, that he was taken away by the Chinese, and the government hasn't heard anything more. Uh, what was the prison camp uh, in which... Camp uh, number five. And that, that's where he was with the, uh, his other two uh, fellow soldiers? Yeah, he was there for three years in camp number five with Pax, called Pax Pallet, P-A-K-S. What, uh, what kind of job did he have when he was in well, the... Oh, he was a machine gunner when he got captured. Okay. 
uh, and uh, they ran out of ammunition when the Chinese crossed the, uh, the Han River and uh, overran their position, and uh, they just ran out of ammunition. They had no choice but to give up. This was according to the Pentagon. Right. Uh, what, what did the two uh, uh, gentlemen say uh, about how they left him, when they left him? Why was he left behind? Why did they get out? Do you know anything about <clears throat> Well, they had, they, they had uh, two trucks going to Freedom Village, they called it. And when they got to Freedom Village, uh, they got off the truck and were released to go across to the, the uh, 38 parallel into uh, Freedom Village. And the other truck that was carrying the other guys turned around and went the other way. And uh, when they saw him going the other way, they thought he was being released. That's what they thought, until the government informed them that they were not released in 1953. These two guys were in the same division, same regiment, same company, and all captured on the same day. Did they say, before 1950. I'm sorry, Bob. Did they say um, that basically this was luck of the draw, who stayed and who went? I think the North Koreans were smart at the time because they knew they were not going to get back their prisoners, all of their prisoners. I think we kept them somewhere around 80,000 that went to Formosa, which is Taiwan today, and the rest went to Japan. And they knew that if they didn't get their prisoners back, we weren't going to get ours. So according to the Pentagon, we had 8,200 men and according to a colonel who was in charge of the prisoner of war situation in North Korea and South Korea, said there were 3,000 Americans ready to be released. But when the North Koreans found out they weren't going to get theirs back, they kept our men, and that was the end of it. So, so the number of North Koreans that were thought not to have made it back was around, what did you say, 8,000? With the Chinese, around 80,000. 80,000. 80,000, yeah. 80,000. Now... Let me ask you a question. What did they, uh, of course, you know, you heard the old adage about the figures don't lie, but liars can figure. How, um, how many, uh, how did how did the Chinese and the Koreans arrive at that figure of 80,000? Was that a figure that was monitored by the Red Cross or what? No, that was, that was monitored, Harry, by the United Nations in the prison camp that we held in South Korea. Okay, so. the number of, exact number of all the guys that were holding. So that was a good, that was a good number. Yeah, yeah. I was telling uh, Buzz about uh, the uh, documentary we just filmed in uh, California. I just finished after three years, and it shows you right on that film about these men what we just talked about about the amount of men that didn't come back and then go back there. Now, you had dealings with federal court. Yeah, I went. I was, actually, I'm the only person in the history of the United States government that ever had a federal court case of a status change that ever went the full length of the court. In other words, the federal judge allowed me to stay in court for almost four years to present all the evidence I had and made him a prisoner of war. He ordered the Army to change it, and if they didn't change it, he would change it. So the Army decided they didn't want no publicity, so they changed it to prisoner of war. Then they presumed him dead again. This was 1983 when I went in, and I came out in 1987 from federal court. I'm the only one that ever went to federal court on this. I know the Vietnam uh, uh, Vietnam families have gone into federal court many, many, many times, but haven't been able to get a status change on this. And World War II veteran families have done the same thing. I'm, I'm, I'm sending a congressional record in Washington as the only case in the history of, of this country. And it should have been thousands of cases like mine changed to prisoner of war, but they didn't do it. Now, uh, keeping in mind what you said about the uh, fact that uh, the 
North Koreans and the Chinese figured that we probably weren't going to ante up and say, what uh, criteria, if any, do you think? I mean, it was just luck of the draw, for lack of a better phrase, that they grabbed your brother as opposed to somebody else, or do you think there was... Oh, well, no, uh, Harry, he wasn't the only one they kept behind. Well, I know that, but I'm saying, what? why did they select those as opposed to... Well, that's a, that's a good question. The good answer is they kept all the guys that had something to do with their uh, history of uh, what they learned in this country in school. My brother was an electrician and a cable operator in the Army, and an electrician in civilian life, and a heavy equipment operator. So what they did was, if they were going to keep 3,000 men, they kept the 3,000 men that would would uh, help them to get some kind of an agreement with this country later on as a political tool. Okay, well, but, that went back to my original question was about what he did while he was in the Army or yeah. at least before then. In other words, he was of some, some value, value to them other than... Yeah, he had value. Okay, yeah. gotcha. Can you, they all did. Can you tell us uh, somewhat about your other two brothers and how they fared in Korea? Yeah, beside, beside my younger brother myself, my brother Ted was at the 25th Division, and my brother Bill was at the 3rd Division, 7th Infantry Regiment. <clears throat> and uh, actually, uh, the, when I got there in 1951, they had already been there before me. And so uh, when they wanted to send me up on the front lines, I was willing to go because I was a regular Army man. And so my captain called me in. He said, you know, he says, we're only supposed to send two men up there, or one or two you brothers, he says, but if you want to go, I can't stop you. So I said, I want to go. So we all ended up we all ended up on one coast to the other, from the east to the west. So I know, I met one of my brothers twice while I was over there. Well, we spoke off, Mike, about the Sullivan Law, because I remember my father was a Navy man in World War II. Told yeah. me all the, told me the story about the Sullivans. And I had asked you, um, couldn't they prohibit all four of you for being in Korea? I'm going to tell you something. You can look on any major channel in this country, major television channel in this country, the major network, you will never see much about the war in Korea. Because of the simple fact is in three years, but just like Vietnam now, in three years we lost 54,000 men killed, 190,000 wounded, almost 200,000, and 8,200 missing or prisoners of war. You yeah. don't read much about Korea. It was devastating in three, in three years. When they refer to that as America's Forgotten War, they're not joking. No, they're not joking. I mean, it is a forgotten war because nobody wants to talk about it. We can't get anybody on the network to talk about it. I don't know why. They just will not talk about it. I saw a show on uh, Ali North. You know who Ali North is? Oh, yeah. Well, Ali has a show on Fox Network every Sunday night. And he mentioned uh, World War II. He mentioned uh, Vietnam, the Persian Gulf, and Iraq last week. And I'm saying to myself, well, I hadn't mentioned Korea. I was the second one after World War II. The fact, the next Cor- one. The fact that Korea has been overlooked. Uh, well, you've got to remember Ali North. I've got to tell you something about this guy. <laughs> Ali North. Let me tell you something about this person. He was in the National Security Office for years. Colonel Ali North. Right. Lieutenant Colonel. Right. Every National Security Colonel that we had working in the National Security Office, I ought to know because I deal with the National Security Office for the last 30 years. Every one of those guys is in charge of POWs and MIAs. Every colonel that's underneath the National Security Advisor, all the way from Eisenhower right up to now, during the Vietnam War, Korean War, after World War II. He has charge of the POW issue. I have never once heard Ali North talk about Vietnam missing or Korean missing. Have you? No. Never. This guy will not talk about it. He's supposed to be a great Marine. 
Yeah, honestly, God, he never mentioned. And the other night, last week, he never mentioned Korea. He skipped over Korea, went right to Vietnam, to the Persian Gulf, and Iraq. Well, that forgotten war syndrome hasn't really helped recovery or uh, no. of uh, of your of your brother or of uh, any information that would lead to a final disposition. Huh? Well, they brought back over 250 remains in the past 10 years from North Korea, and you know how many they have identified? Ten mm-hmm. out of 250. And you know we got a, we got a cemetery down in Honolulu. I think you guys know where that is. Mm-hmm. The Honolulu Punch Bowl. Mm-hmm. We've got eight, uh, let's see, it is, uh, oh, God, how many is there? I think it's 865 unidentified men from Korea, Korean War, buried there. And they have a list of who they are, but you know what? They can't, they can't exhume them. You know why? Because they don't know which one is which. So they don't want to spend all the money to exhume all the bodies and find out who's who so they can notify the families. Uh, and the, with the DNA, DNA technology as it is today. Um, oh, sure. They know who they are. They, when they were turned over in 1955 in Operation Glory, they were all in good shape. These guys were killed on a battlefield or died in a prison camp. So the, the remains are all intact, most of them. Okay? Right. No problem. But they just don't want to exhume them to tell the families that they waited 50 years to tell them that they're already in this country. They want it. They're not in North Korea. Do you think it's a case, really a case of convenience? Or do you think there's some other reasoning that we're not uh, aware of that, that might be behind that uh, motivation? Well, you know what they're saying. They're saying, well, there are some POW remains in, that, in the punch bowl from Korea, but most of them were killed on the battlefield. No, I found out from the analyzer of the uh, DPMO, which is the prisoner war uh, the office in Washington, that the majority is men, three-quarters of them, are from Camp 5 and Camp 4 and Camp 3. Camp to whatever, and they're prisoners of war. So, you know, for almost 50 years, the family's been waiting for the sons to come home, either way, alive or in remains, and they're still here. They're over there in Hawaii, and they had never been notified. Uh, I That's, mean a to crime. Be... That's a crime right there. I don't mean to be indelicate about this terminology, but was there ever an attempt, either with your brother or with others, uh, Korean vets, uh, just to basically, quote, kill them off and pay out a, a death benefit and move on? You hit the nail right on the head. Because when, you, when you're when declared dead, right, you mm-hmm. get a, a policy of $10,000 goes to the family, the mother and father, of an American flag and a purple heart. Case closed. That's it. Case closed. So they closed the case on 8,200 guys, just like they did in Vietnam. They closed the case on what, 2,500 or so? Yeah. Yeah, they did the same thing in Vietnam. They did in Korea. You know, 93,000 guys missing in this country, nobody's been accounted for but one man, and that was by accident. I think you probably heard the name Gawood. He came out of Vietnam in uh, the uh, middle 70s only by slipping a note to a Swedish diplomat, and we had no choice but to... Uh, I can't tell... remember that, yeah. You remember that, Harry? Yep, you're right. Yeah, right. And you know what they did to this poor bugger? <laughs> they declared him dead. I'm not declaring that they uh, gave him a dishonorable discharge. <laughs> and he didn't even get paid. He kept his money. Because he said he didn't know what he was talking about when he said he knew about other Americans in Vietnam when he, when he came out. Uh, let, let me ask you this. I mean, now that you've served, um, along with your three brothers, you have a situation with one of them that was left behind. Um, when you watch uh, the drums being beaten for us to go into incursions like Iraq two times, ten years apart, what goes through your mind? <laughs> well, my son just got back from Iraq, my youngest son. By the way, my youngest son is uh, born the same month 
He was born on the 12th. My brother in Korea was born on the 21st of July. They're both left-handed. They both write the same, exactly the same, the left-handed writers. Their, their writing is exactly, we had a check with a professional writer, and he said they're both exactly the same. Now, what comes around comes around. I hope it never does. But he came back safe from, uh, from Iraq. Did you try to discourage him? Did you try to discourage him from going? Or? No, I couldn't do that because he's a military man. Once, once he's gone for 20 years, you know, mm-hmm. one way or the other, he was going to go. He was going to either get killed or get wounded or, or make the 20 years. Now, what's his uh, what's his take as a military man, obviously a career man, on uh, the experiences that you've gone through with, with regard to your brother? Well, let me tell you something. When he left to go to Korea, he kept thinking about it all the time he was over there. I said, make sure you do one thing when you go overseas. Look over your shoulder. Never, never, always pay attention to what you're doing. Always pay attention. He did. He said he paid attention. And he told the guys that were with him, his crew, Air Force, his Air Force crew, he told the guys the same thing, always keep an eye out, look over your shoulder. That was a term we used in Korea. You know, never stick your head up unless you know what's on here. With uh, the treatment that we see, uh, the Gulf War veterans from the first time around getting or not getting, actually, um, did he, uh, did your son at all, you know, Considered, I'm sure he did consider it, but it just seems that when they come back, they're they're, they're forgotten about very quickly. Did that, well, that impact him at all, or? Well, you know, he hasn't been the same since he came back. You know, after after uh, I don't know, 275 missions, and every airfield in uh, Iraq, and jumping over bombed out craters and everything else with your plane, and trying to land on an airfield, and uh, having to dodge mortars every time you get out of your plane. <laughs> He wasn't in too good a shape when he came back because he hadn't slept much, you know. So he's got to go through all that process of getting himself back into uh, his mind, back into shape again. You know. Did, did see, see what the newsmen tell you is not exactly what's going on over there. He said, "You never. They don't really know what went on." There. Right. Well, you know, thinking about this depleted uranium situation. Yeah. Do you have any take on that? On what that again? On the depleted uranium that was used for ordnance over there. Uh, you mean if I thought there was some over there before we invaded? No, I mean just about the fact that there's an exposure by the soldiers. I mean, actually, it, it kind of kills on both ends. Oh, you mean like they did in uh, the uh, like yeah. uh, Agent Orange and that? Yeah, we, right. we used uh, armor-penetrating shells made of depleted uranium. Oh, yeah, Harry, yeah. and I believe that I really believe that's happened over there in Iraq because a lot of guys are coming back complaining now. Oh yeah, about their help, just like it was in Vietnam. They, of course, they, they tried to cover that up. Oh, sure. They tried to cover that up for years, and they're still trying to cover it up. I think it's uh, almost ironic, too, and unfortunate that the uh, then-later chief of naval operations' son died of the poisoning from the uh, Agent Orange. Yeah, I heard about that one. That, that's terrible. That's terrible. Yeah. And, and guys today are still in VA hospitals. And can't even get the care that they need anyway because the government won't supply the money for it. Well, there's a suit that was denied. I don't know if you're aware. I just happened to read in today's uh, uh, New York Times, and the government denied uh, a class action suit against going against again the manufacturer and going after uh, the Department of Defense because they're in addition to the amount of U.S. military personnel that have suffered as a result of Agent Orange. Uh, there's countless tens of thousands of Vietnamese children who have been born with birth defects and everything else that you know that uh, have been pretty much traced to the use of dioxin. Well, that's all that poison, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. 
all that poison. Yeah, and you know the same thing's going on in Iraq too. All the, you know, guys are telling me when they're coming back that the shells like you talked about exploded. Yeah. And and Iraq was, was you got poison all over the place. Mm-hmm. It, you can't help it. Anytime anything explodes, you don't know what's in there. We have a a coworker uh, whose uh, friend uh, it, it's a woman. Her husband is a physician. The physician is not military, but was under contract to go over to Iraq to try to flesh out uh, why so many Iraqi children are being born deformed. And I told my coworker, I said, he's going to find out it's DU. And not too long ago, I asked her if she had heard it all um, from her friend's husband. And they said, yeah, it looks like it is DU. That's the cause of it. I believe that, yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's the munitions that keeps on killing. Did you ever know this country? Did I ever tell the truth? When it comes to war, uh, I have never, ever had anybody. If they lied about the prisoners of war in this country for 40, 50 years since World War II, what's to prevent them from lying about everything? Well, you raise a question within me that regards the war in general. Bob, if you don't mind speaking to this, if you don't want to, you don't have to. Go ahead. But my dad caught World War II and he caught Korea. Lucky him. And um, I, I wondered, as a, not now, looking back as a child and, and hearing about what he was telling me, how in the world the United States could be so ready for war again after, of course, the war to end all wars. Can you tell us a little bit about that time and what the mentality was to get us back into a conflict? Well, you know what, you know what, uh, what a lot of people in this country don't even know this because it's never been written about. Tom Brokaw wrote a book about World War II, but this guy just right. didn't tell the truth in that book. Okay. First of all, back in 1945 when the war ended, five years later, Korea started, which was only five years later. And a lot of guys that were still in the reserves from World War II went to Korea. And unbeknownst to the people in this country, we had a lot of those men got killed in Korea from World War II. They made it through World War II, but they went to Korea and got killed. And a lot of those guys were captured by the enemy and, and put in prison camps in Korea. Well, I mean, they were, they were Korean men, right? These are the guys who were going for 20 years. Right. And they were a regular army, a regular navy, a regular marine. Yeah, these weren't were the four-year, two-year draft guys that were counting the days. These were people that were making a career out of this. Right, they were making a career out of the service. And, uh, and a lot of them got married when they came home and uh, stayed in the service and uh, went overseas. And I know for a fact that my list of uh, prisoners of the war, there's about 100 guys that were captured from World War II. And get this, we had two brothers that were in a prison camp in Germany in World War II Ended up in a prison camp in Korea, North Korea. What, what years would this have been taking place, though? Are we talking about the time in between 45 and the acknowledgement of the, of the uh, hostilities, what, 1950, 51? 50, yeah, when it started, 1950. So were any of these uh, soldiers captured in between that 45 to 50 uh, time frame? Well, I don't know. I can't really tell you because okay. between 45 and 49, we had... Uh, I, I, I don't – tell you the truth, I don't know much about 49 before that. Well, ironically, uh, just after I spoke to you this morning and about only an hour from now, um, a gentleman came in and donated to the library for which Harry and I work probably about, I'd say, 16 volumes of video dedicated to the Korean War. You're kidding. I, I'm telling you, that's, that's kind of eerie. Isn't that eerie? Yeah. And I, just today? Just today. I'm, uh, within – at the midpoint between my first talking to you and now. You're making well, it up, aren't you? I'm not making it okay. up. 
Well, somebody's trying to help. Well, you know what he said to me was, and this is why I bring it up, he told me that he was in Korea prior to the hostilities. He was there in whatever shape or form our, our troops were there in 48 and 49. Yeah. So he, he was there before it got hot. That's why I wondered if we were in there getting involved in certain operations. Oh, yeah. Oh, hold on a minute. Yeah, I know that. Yeah, we had advisors in there in 49, 48 and 49. Right. We had advisors in there because I think the South Koreans knew that something was up in North Korea at the time, that something was going to happen. And who were the advisors advising? Were they advising the North Koreans or the South Koreans? They were supposedly there to help the South Koreans, and I wonder sometimes if the advisors are kind of like the Vietnamese advisors. Yeah. They're in there really to instigate. Yeah. Well, you know, that's that's a good question, Harry. I can't answer that one for you, but I think it's probably, you know, we never told the truth about anything in this country. I want to put it past me. If something like that happened, right. you know. I want to remind people you're listening to the Grassy Knoll on Day City Micro Radio, and our guest today is Bob Dumas, a Korean War veteran, uh, talking about the search of his brother who was left behind as a POW. Bob, what is your brother's name? You probably told us, but yes, it was Corporal Roger Armand Dumas. It was Regular Army two one one zero zero four four eight one, and uh, he was uh, eighteen years old. When he was captured, along with thousands of others at that age, 19, 20, 21, the guys from World War II were in their 20s, middle 20s. You know, they were on the age of uh, maybe close to 30, some of them. Uh, you, talked about, you talked about Rogers, two um, fellow soldiers from his unit. Well, they weren't necessarily from the unit. They were interned to get, weren't they? Yeah, they were. Right. Uh, what, I'm just curious, what kind of treatment did the other two uh, gentlemen say they received as uh, POWs? Well, listen to this now. There's a book that came out two years ago called Korean Atrocities that's not even making it off the shelf. It was written by a Mr. Punnery from England, a former ex-POW from World War II. He got so interested in, in Korea that he wrote this book and went into the archives in England and confiscated all the records he could on, the, on North Korea. We used to have them in this country, but they're classified. You can't even look at them. He'd get them out of the English, uh, whatever they call it over there, records. And he wrote this book. I got it right here. It's called Korean Atrocities. You pick that book up and you read about 10 pages, you got to put it down. Oh. you got to put it down, what happened to our men in North Korea and China, what the Chinese did to our men and what the North Koreans did to our men, how they annihilated our men, how they starved them, how uh, eight, almost uh, 800 guys died the first year in Camp Number 5 alone. That's not counting the other 21 camps because of starvation, the tuberculosis. Uh, they had no food. They were living off uh, anything that gets ground. No medical assistance, none whatsoever. I think Vietnam was almost the same way, you know, as it was in uh, Korea. That's, this, this book is all about that, but you don't see it anywhere. You live long enough. They kept that one quiet, too. Yes. Well, you lived long enough to see two versions of the Manchurian Candidate. Did yeah. that movie impact you the first time and the second when I, time? When I, first, when I first saw the Manchurian Candidate, everybody called me up in my area where I live here and said I was, I was me because <laughs> of what I was doing. Sure. You know, trying to get the government to do something, and they were stonewalling, stonewalling, and stonewalling. And, you know, you were, I made 135 trips to Washington, D.C. since 1953. When you trying said, to get this thing out in the open. I met at the White House with Reagan. I was supposed to meet with Reagan at 10 o'clock in the morning, and I met with Colonel Bud Nance in the afternoon 
instead of Reagan because they had a defense department meeting in the West Wing. So I finally got the national security advisor, Bud Nance, who came out and says, uh, the president's too busy to meet with you. I'll meet with you. And I found out later why he wanted to meet with me because this is one of the guys that's on a documentary film. You'll see what he did in 1991 and 1992, which was only 13, 14 years ago, to, to squelch this prisoner war issue in this country. Probably the last uh, person he wanted you talking to was Ronald Reagan. He didn't want me talking to Reagan. No, not at all. Because Reagan came out in the Rose Garden about two months before that and made a statement about Korea and Vietnam, believing there were live Americans in Vietnam and Korea. The next day, you never heard another word. That was the end of it. So, all right, so they, they gagged Ronnie after that statement. Huh? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. After that statement, he was gagged. He was gagged, like but, I said. Well, look at, uh, look at uh, what's his name? Senator Helms from North Carolina. Right. Helms is the same way. In 1991, he made a statement in Washington. When they started the hearings on POWs from Vietnam, you know, when they had that hearing that with John Kerry was the chairman? Yeah. Vice chairman was Bob Smith. That's all on the documentary, too, by the way. All right. And, yeah. Bob, and, uh, Bob, I want to stop you there because you mentioned the documentary. We're going to do more with this uh, with Bill. But why don't you give us um, a little uh, uh, thumbnail about what that documentary is and uh, what, it, what, what it's all about? Well, I'll tell you what. It's the truest documentary ever made in the history of this country. It took three and a half years to do. Uh, I couldn't travel all the time with my nephew, but I had him going down south. I had him going all over the place interviewing people. And it was tough trying to get the interviews from the, some of the people, but he finally got them. With my help, he was able to interview guys like uh, Congressman Bob Dornan from California, Bob Smith from New Hampshire, uh, Jim Lasseur, the chief of staff of Helms, uh, Joe Douglas, who wrote the new book uh, called Betrayed two years ago, and you never even heard about it. Nobody hears, nobody hears about it because they won't allow them to talk about it on television. Betrayed by our country. It's, it, you read this book, you, you read the whole story of what happened in North Korea and Vietnam. Oh. How come they don't uh, mention any of that stuff on Fox so they're fair and balanced? No, they won't touch it. They tried to get on there. They won't even talk to them. Uh, how was your reception with Bob Dornan? Great. Yeah, he's a nice guy. Great. Bob Dunn, one of the best men you'll ever meet, and he was pushed out of office because of this issue of prisoners of war because he was chairman of the POW committee for years in Washington, and he was so close to getting guys out of North Korea and Vietnam that when it came time for him to vote, uh, to run for re-election, his own party pushed him he out. He sabotaged his own, yeah. American, his own yeah. party got him out. Same with Bob Smith, vice chairman of the POW committee. He was pushed out by his own party because he was getting too close. That's pretty bad when the Republican Party would sabotage it with Democrat, minority Democrats in the case well, of Well, like district. I said about Helms, Jesse Helms said, I want criminal indictments against anybody responsible for leaving men alive in Vietnam and North Korea. Well, he got, he got the evidence to, to indict people when four investigators, led by Jim Lasseur, his chief of staff for 28 years, and uh, a guy by the name of Perrin, P-E-R-R-I-N, and Tracy Ressery, who's on this film, said that they were live Americans in Vietnam and North Korea in 1991 and 1992. But when he got to Helms, Helms called Brent up, the National Security Advisor. Brent Scowcroft turned around to Bud Nance, the guy I met in the White House, Admiral Bud Nance, sent him over to Helms' office, and turns around and fires all four investigators. And not one of those men testified before Kerry's committee because Kerry didn't want him before his committee. 
because they knew about live Americans in Vietnam and Korea. It's true. God, that is true. You'll see it all on the film. Bob, I'm going to digress for a moment now that you brought up the name, and we'll get back on track. Uh, John Kerry and all this flap about him uh, being a hero, not being a hero. Do you have any information or any feelings uh, regarding those uh, charges either way? Well, I was going to tell you something. All you have to do is look at him. He was the chairman of the POW committee. When one of his lawyers by the name of McCrary, lawyer McCrary, who worked on his committee for the prisoners of war in 1991 and 1992, after the hearings closed down, McCrary wrote a, a, a letter and, uh, uh, a three or four page letter that I have here in my file. Everybody I know of that was involved with that case has a copy of it where he said that John Kerry ordered his uh, chief of staff, which is a girl by the name of Frances Zewing, to destroy records on live Americans from Vietnam and Korea. He didn't want nothing to do with live Americans. You could talk about remains. When you start talking about live Americans, you cut it short. And his other buddy, partner, John McCain from Arizona, who Jim LeSueur, the chief of staff of Helm, said did everything possible when that committee would carry to shoot down the live issue in 1991-92. I had a four-page letter that McCarry wrote. He was a lawyer for Kerry, one of his lawyers. He said they should have never closed those hearings down. Never. They kept them open until they had all the facts and the witnesses and then kept it open and then fought the government to do something. So, are you, uh, so you're convinced, and there's probably some outside pressure that was brought to bear on those committees to end them. Yeah, naturally, sure. And yeah. a lot of the pressure was from outside. Also, a lot of the pressure, Harry, came from uh, inside, from some of the powerful guys in inside, like Helms was powerful at the time, the chairman of foreign relations. Guys like him that wanted to help. you got to remember this now. I, you know, being a Republican Democrat doesn't make any difference. <laughs> If, if you're either party, because when the guys are left behind and nobody's going to go out and negotiate. They don't care what's on their voter card. Huh? I said it doesn't matter what's, what's on their voter card if you're left behind. No, it doesn't matter what's on the voter card. These guys are left behind after all wars. 93,000 men are left behind and nobody's accounted for. Harry had asked you about the pressure that might be brought to bear from the outside. Uh, why or who would those forces be from the outside? Well, you've got guys like Henry Kissinger. Who, oh, by the way, lives in Connecticut, not too far from me, about 40 miles from me. You can buy and throw eggs. I don't want him lucky. I don't even want him near me. You can buy and throw eggs in his house every now and then? Yes, sir. I'll tell you how important this, I'll tell you how much power this man has. On a Friday night in my federal court case, the first night, the night before my federal court case opened in Hartford, Connecticut, he flew into Hartford, Connecticut to meet with my judge in his chambers for two hours trying to get me thrown out of court. So I wouldn't be able to let the whole country know what happened to my brother in North Korea. Well, the, uh, yeah. The following morning when the trial opened, the judge came out a half hour late. He says, I'm sorry, ladies and gentlemen. He says, I'm sorry I'm late. He says, I've been on the phone with Washington for the last half hour. That was, that was Kissinger because I got the call from Channel 3, the television channel in Harvard that told me that Kissinger was there. And they wanted to know from me what I knew about it. I said, I didn't even know he was there. That's one example of what this man did back in 1983. Well, it's it's to Kissinger that the uh, the quote in Final Days by uh, Woodward. Yeah. What Kissinger said about the soldiers? They what were they dumb dumb pawns or dumb beasts? Uh, oh, he had names of everybody. This guy. 
Well, yeah, for the furthering of what American foreign policy or something like right, that. Just, right, um, right, And um, you know what? He's still around. <laughs> He's still there. He hasn't gone away. Well, administrations come and go, but Henry stays. So that's the he real. He stays. Problem. He don't go anywhere because he keeps it quiet. And you know, Brent Scowcroft is eighty-six years old, and guess where he was two years ago? State Department. Yep. In charge of all all intelligence coming out of the Southeast Asia, and the Far East. Guess what? Isn't that where our prisoners are being held? Yep. Vietnam and Korea? Right. Yep. So there's a guy, and he's still there, by the way. Chopoff is still there. He hasn't gone anywhere. Uh, yes, they till they die, and they'll take it to their grave with them. You know what's amazing is, too, and you, there is some truth about the silent majority in this country. I don't want to paraphrase somebody else's remark, but uh, the reality is that I have never talked to a Vietnam veteran that didn't believe that Vietnam veterans were left behind. Oh, yeah. Yeah, everybody you talk to. But nobody, but nobody really – why – when you consider there's a – just in, in the Vietnam, not to diminish the uh, the Korean War veteran, but in Vietnam alone there are millions of veterans in this country that are alive and well, and why they don't bring pressure to bear, and including well, myself, is beyond me. Harry, you heard of Rolling Thunder? Yes. Okay, once a year we get down to Washington, right? Rolling Thunder comes down to Washington. All the motorcycle guys from all over come to Washington for the weekend to represent the the issue of prisoners of war and MIAs. But, you know, they have to pay their own way. They do everything to get down there. But you know what? When they leave to go back home, we don't have no more until the next year. That's right. Which is 365 days later, and we go back down again. This is 16 years, 17 years this year. This started. I want to get the name of that documentary out again that your nephew produced that's Betrayed by Our Own Country. Betrayed by Our Country. What's that, the name of it? The name of the documentary. No, the Prisoners of War Presumed Dead. Okay. And when is this documentary available? It's available now. Okay. All, uh, it's available now because uh, 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 I guess Lisa Giuliani has already talked to you about it. She's from Pennsylvania. Yes, that's true. And she's been announcing it on her uh, website. Okay. That's what Prisoner of War Presumed huh? Dead. Prisoner of War. Prisoner of War Presumed mm-hmm. Dead. Okay, and they can, people can find out about that by going to your nephew's website. Is that correct? Uh, yes, they can because uh, I got the website here if you'd like to take it down. Okay, go. It, it's at, at www.eaglecried.com. Okay, it's eaglecried.com. Right. Okay. And that, is that available, do you know, in DVD as well as VHS? It's available in the in, uh, VCR video and DVD. Okay. And on the DVD, it's interesting because what they did was they left the whole thing on there. Everything that was ever done with these congressmen and senators and people involved with this issue is on that DVD. The first 65 minutes is a documentary. The next two hours is part of the documentary, which will give you more of an insight of what really happened. You can only do an hour. Because it, it, after an hour, people got kind of tired of looking at something for two hours yeah. or three hours. But they can do it on their own. Right. Uh, going back to um, to Roger's story, um, there's a hole in there that I just want to uh, fill up. Um, I know that you spoke to it, but how exactly uh, did you prove that he was uh, an MIA? Easy. I went into federal court, and uh, the congressman got me uh, phone numbers of two XPOWs that were with him the day he was captured. And uh, we subpoenaed one of them from Grovetown, Georgia, a guy by the name of uh, Tate, 
Lloyd Tate, and he was brought to Hartford for the trial. He testified in federal court for almost two hours. Uh, the federal judge took his chair from his bench and wheeled it over to where he was sitting as a witness the first time in history this has ever been done, and put his elbow right on his chair and listened for two hours him describing about my brother and him in the prison camp in 1950 to 53. How do you like that one? Yeah. You don't hear that too That's often. Encouraging, yeah, without a doubt. Well, and there was also a gentleman that uh, a soldier who had been captured a second time and saw him in 1957. Yeah, yeah. His name was um, his name. They're getting getting me now. But anyway, he was captured twice, and uh, the government called him about two years ago to talk to him. And they then they called me and they told me, well, he lied about being captured a second time. I said, why would he lie about a second time? Because when he told me about it, he described everything that went on in Camp 5 the first time around, and he described everything the second time around, and he was willing to take an oath on the rope and take a lie detection test, but you wouldn't give him one. They would never give him one. When did he finally affect his freedom? Was it in 1957 or shortly after? 57, he was released with seven other men that were captured on a 38 parallel on a, on a uh, patrol one night. They were, you know, in those days, back in the uh, early 50s, or middle 50s, they didn't have any barbed wire on a 38 parallel. If you stepped into uh, North Korean territory, you were captured. And if they stepped into uh, South Korean territory, they were captured. So, so, you know, since 1953, when the war ended, we had over 1,500 men captured. Why, uh, why did it take until 1957 for his release to occur? Well, because the State Department would not admit that they crossed over the 38th parallel. Okay. It took 11 months. Do you remember the Pueblo? Right. USS Pueblo, they kept them for 11 months. There's something with the North Koreans, that 11 month or whatever, something to do with them. I don't know what that 11 means, but they kept them for 11 months and they kept these guys for 11 months. But they were, these are the only ones I know about. There were 1,500 other guys captured from 53, but I don't know what happened to them. You know, Bob, we think a lot of the wars that are fought are obviously um, instigated by bankers and industrialists so they can make a lot of money. Yeah. Um, some listeners of the show, some of them are younger and Harry and I um, kind of asked, well, what was Korea about? And I got to confess to you, Bob, I, I have a hard time figuring out what Korea was about. I mean, what it really was about. Um, do you have any feelings about that? Well, I think two of us. <laughs> I don't even know what it's about myself because um, when I, I didn't even know what Korea was when I joined the Army. When I went and joined up for the Army and uh, took my training in Atterbury, Indiana for 28 weeks, and then they shut me over to Korea. I said, where is this place? Well, I don't even know where we're going. And what are we doing there? You know, all we're doing is fighting another uh, enemy. We're told that we're enemies. The North Koreans invaded South Korea. And then all of a sudden, the Chinese get involved. And we're wondering, why are the Chinese involved? Then we find out that Russia was involved back in the Chinese. The Chinese were back in the North Koreans. So uh, it was a mess. A simple, here's a country that's the size of Delaware and Connecticut put together. That's about it. Mm -hmm. About 300 miles one way and 180 miles the other way. Well, even if I thought um, that perhaps South Korea gave our troops some, um, our military some uh, advantageous listening posts, if you will, to keep our eyes on the, on the Chinese, we still had a presence in Japan, so I can't even say that was the cause. No. But, you know, it seemed to me, and, and tell me what you think, that was almost like the Chinese were more involved in this than the North Koreans were. Well, the Chinese were under prison camps. Chinese gave them money, supplied the military might, along with Russia. Both of them supplied the military might to back up the North Koreans. That's why we had such a 
terrible time in the beginning, the first year and a half, because they were supplying everything to the North Koreans. And then the troops came in. What did we have? Uh, we had to face six, uh, six 700,000 Chinese troops. I mean, we didn't have that manpower. We, did, we, we had maybe 300,000 men at one time on the line, but hey, you're getting overrun with 700,000 Chinese, and you're fighting back and forth like, uh, who's going to take this tomorrow? They take it the next day. You go back and take it the following week, whatever. This went on for almost three years. What was, your take, what was your take on MacArthur? I loved him. I thought he was a great man. If they'd have let him alone, we'd have had my brother home years ago. He wanted to go and fight the Chinese through Chiang Kai-shek, remember? Mm-hmm. And Formosa, Chiang Kai-shek had almost 360,000 men ready to invade China. And MacArthur says if we can get Chiang Kai-shek into China as a nationalist uh, Chinese to take back their country, you know, from the communists, he said we can end this thing in no time at all. So when Harry Truman saw this, he says, oh, we're not going to start another world war because you have something going with the Chinese on Formosa. So they fired MacArthur, brought him home, and we still stayed there for two more years. Because of the uh, Soviet involvement with the, right. United, with the United Nations, um, it's believed that the United Nations was telegraphing uh, what our plans were to the uh, Chinese or the North Koreans. And, uh, well, we had British troops fighting with us side by side in, North, in Korea against the Chinese, and the British were selling arms to China at the same time. Not to Shek, though, right? Huh? No, no, no. He was on Formosa. I'm talking about the Beijing, China. Okay. The, the communists. They were. We, England was selling to them hardware, military hardware to fight us, and we had British troops on our side fighting them. You figure it out. How'd you like to? How, as, as bad as that sounds, how'd you like to be a British soldier fighting a war against the country that you're selling stuff to? Yeah. Well, he did but a World War Two. this, Harry, at the time. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Hey. They didn't notice those years later when this guy wrote the book about Korean atrocities. Mm-hmm. He mentions a lot about uh, his own country. He has to be careful what he says because he's still living. <laughs> you well, know? I'm, but this goes back also to Chamberlain and his munition plants in Germany. Right. I Same mean, Brits were taking in the shorts from, from his own uh, armaments. Oh, yeah. And let me tell you something, uh, guys. <clears throat> if you remember John Kennedy from Massachusetts, when yeah. John became president of the United States, I've been talking about this for the last couple of years now. I studied that seven days a week for 50 years, 52 years. And John Kennedy, in 1961, in his first news conference, when he was asked about American prisoners in North Korea and China, he said yes. And this is on the documentary, by the way. He said yes, we're negotiating and talking to China now about the release of American prisoners from the Korean War. This is 1961. This is eight years after the war. But nothing he's talking is- about, yeah, he's negotiating with China. China. After he got assassinated, everything shut right down. Hmm. After Johnson took over, everything shut down on Korea. Well, nothing. You never heard another word. Well, it didn't involve nothing. Well, so, well, uh, you know, from 1954 to 61, you got to remember, John Kennedy was on the Prisoner of War Committee with Joe McCarthy from Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. Senator McCarthy, who uh, Eisenhower called a warmonger, a communist hater, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. But you got to remember that John Kennedy was on that committee along with his brother Bob, who was the chief counsel lawyer for that committee, and Joe McCarthy. When yeah. Kennedy was assassinated in 63, uh, November 22nd, the 15 witnesses to his assassination all died violently. 
the 15 senators on the commission for POWs for Joe McCarthy all died violently. Yeah, there's some question as to whether uh, uh, Joe wasn't, shall we say, quote, suicided. Yeah, I know. But he was working to get our men out of North Korea and China at the time. When they all died violently on that committee and they all died violently on Kennedy's assassination, that's 32 men right there, or 30 men right there. Well, we kind of think that, that Joe McCarthy was probably more right than he was wrong and probably set up as well. Oh, yeah, of course, naturally. Because Don't forget now, he died in a Rochester hospital. He didn't die in Washington. Oh, no. He died in a Rochester hospital in New York. Yeah. And his body was shipped to Milwaukee that following afternoon and buried that same day. Right. And the family had nothing to say about it. Yeah, That's it. it was that little, was it. The circumstance a little strange around his demise. Yeah, well, you know, we work in different ways in this country when it oh, comes yeah. to... When it comes to prisoners of war. Well, you know, the, the thing was, I mean, there were a lot of active communists in the country. Of course there was. And so, and, and the names that he w- he was fed were not the ones he came up with by himself, but some I, some good people might have gotten also hit by that as well. But what, I, what we think it happened was that they went ahead and they exposed this, then they demonized McCarthy, and I think Welch was a set up also. Yeah. You know, a, especially that famous dramatic moment where he says, never did I gauge until this moment how cruel you were. Right. They knew McCarthy. They said McCarthy that that guy was involved in a lefty lawyers uh, association. Yeah, I got a book. I got a book right here called The Politician by Welch. By Welch, Massachusetts, the lawyer. Yeah. Yeah, and 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 you got to read this one. I'll tell you, this guy was something else. Well, he talks about what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, same thing. Yeah, I mean, but you know, you know something. When it comes to prisoners of war in this country, nobody wants to talk about it. Nobody wants to talk about when Johnny comes marching home one way or the other, though, do they, Bob? No, not at all. Whether he comes home or he comes home whole or in half or whatever. They still don't we... get no credit. They still don't get right. any credit at all. This has been going on for 60, 70 years. That's just a dot yesterday. This has been going on for 60 or 70 years. And, uh, you know, when we started doing the documentary three years, three and a half years ago, and started meeting all these different people and getting to interview them and talking about what they knew, it's unbelievable the stuff that they came out with that this country has been hiding for years, not letting the American people know what really went on. What is the issue of uh, Vietnam and Korea? Even the Persian Gulf. Back in then, the Persian Gulf. We don't even know what happened to those guys. We're trying to figure out just how old you are. We've been kicking <laughs> well, it. Well, me? Yeah. I, oh, I'm, hell, I sound like I'm 20, right? I, yeah, I, I was figuring about 35, but then when I yeah. did the math, it didn't come out right. I'll be 75 March 9th. Okay, well, good good for the you. Same, the same night that Dan Rather is, is retiring, <laughs> and I'm happy to see him go. Yeah, me too. I'm happy. You know why? Because his producer of 48 Hours called me two years ago to do a story on the prisoners in North Korea. And they wanted to investigate it. And then uh, Peter Van Sant, one of his correspondents, says, uh, if you work with us, he said, we want to go into North Korea through Beijing, get a get a visa, go into North Korea, and investigate your brother and the other guys that never came home. He also believed there were live guys there, right? I get a phone call from this producer a week later, who I knew for about seven years. She was trying to get this on 48 hours for seven years, but Dan rather kept uh, dogging it. So finally, the last time she went to him on this story, he said, stay away from Dumas. I don't ever want you talking to him again. She asked him why. He says, I just told you, stay away from him. So two days later, I got a phone call from uh, from her saying that she was uh, getting ready to go somewhere and she was going to resign from her job because it was getting too much for her. Do you recall the story on here? 
Do you recall the producer's name? Uh, yeah, Linda Kim. We've been looking for her for 12 months now. We can't find her anywhere in the world. I've got people looking for her all over the world. Linda Giuliani from Pennsylvania was uh, been on the uh, been on the track for her for the last two months and uh, hasn't been able to come up with anything. Well, I'll tell you, we had a guest on also who felt the ire of um, the higher-ups in 60 Minutes. Her name is Christina, Christina Borgeson. She was um, on the case of TWA 800 shoot-down. Yeah. And, of course, she got the goods, and they fired her. Oh, yeah. The minute you get the truth, they want you out. You're out of there. In fact, then You're I out think, of there. Then I think back, I, I, Borgeson might have even referenced Linda in her book, uh, Into the Buzzsaw. That, that's starting to sound familiar to me. Yeah, Linda Kimberney was a South Korean-American girl. And I believe, this is my own opinion, and I've been studying this for years and years, I think that she didn't quit on her own. They fired her That's because right. she wanted to get this on the air, That's right. and they wouldn't do it. He wouldn't do it. Dan Rather would not do it. And we went to Tom Brokaw, and he wouldn't even talk to us. This what? was about eight years ago. The Vietnam uh, VDA, mm-hmm. VDA from Vietnam organization, right. went to Tom Brokaw, broke up for the live issue in Vietnam. He wouldn't even talk to him. He wouldn't even talk to him. None of us are lovers of Brokaw, rather, or Jennings. I mean, they're all all liars. Every three, the whole three of them. And the ones that replace them will be, too. Yeah, I was surprised myself about the Fox Network, because I watch them every day. I watch that network every day. I see O'Reilly every night. I watch, uh, you know, all these guys, Hannity and Combs. I'm saying to myself, well, they sound like guys that really want to put would put this on the air but we tried to get it on Fox network and they wouldn't even talk to them. yeah they're entertainers and that's all they, that's all they are entertainers. Entertainers. they don't want to know the truth what went on they're just entertainers on tv yeah keep everybody happy but the yeah. shame of it is that it's, it's individuals like yourself who have been uh, involved in the inner workings of mainstream media and government that understand this while so many people for some strange reason impute all this integrity to uh, mainstream news is that they're being told the truth. And I have no idea why they believe they're being told the truth. Yeah. In fact, these things go on because no, no, no light is shed on this on a, on a national basis. It's people like us who are doing pocket work everywhere trying to tell people to wake up. Yeah, and I appreciate what you guys are trying to do to help. And it's too bad that uh, everybody doesn't feel the way you guys do. But again, like you said, not everybody knows the truth about that. That's right. Not everybody knows the truth. Uh, like my nephew last night, he was at a, uh, in the middle of uh, California, about four and a half hours from Pasadena, with the state of California chapters of all the uh, Vietnam veterans, chapters. Yes. And he showed the documentary uh, yesterday morning, or the night before last. He showed it to uh, the, the members of the, uh, the DVA there, and uh, one of the guys didn't even want to see the film. No, because he said the government would never do that, would never leave anybody behind. And he walked out the door. But the head of the organization guy, the, the XPOW that was there, he said, well, if you look at the film, maybe you'll learn something. Because he had already seen the documentaries. And the guy didn't even want to look at the documentary. He just walked out the door. We've been speaking you don't have some veterans like that in this country. We've been I'm speaking with Bob. Bob, we're running out of time, so let me get this out as, as we can. Uh, we are speaking with you, Bob Dumas, who's been looking for his brother Roger since 1953, uh, over a five-decade uh, um, journey, which has so far not really uncovered anything final about his brother Roger. Now, the other thing is your nephew, Bill, yeah. is uh, the producer of a documentary called Prisoner of War, Presumed Dead. Right. All right, uh, for people who want to go check that out, go to Eagle Cried. 
dot com and find out more about that. At 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 the uh, what did I say? Did I say at Eagle Flag? It's www. Yeah. Yeah, at www. Right, listen, and, I want to uh, thank you very much for being with us, and I and I want to thank Victor Thorne and Lisa Giuliani for telling us about you because obviously those are good people as well who are concerned about what's going right. on and what's not going on. All right. Listen, thank you very much, Bob. We'll be in touch again. All right. You're welcome. God bless you. Bye bye. You too. asking why I'm doing this. I don't know. Uh, well, part of it is because of what the Korean War did to me, to my family, to my father, to my uncle. My uncle was one of those guys he's talking about. <laughs> His name was Richard Van Newhouse. And he, from what we know, was in one of these camps prisoner of war and he went through living hell we've managed to contact one person that was in prison with him, managed to get out and uh, my uncle before he died TB lost both his feet through frostbite and I think they finally went and shot him in the head then my father he was in the Korean War he drove off with some of those military vehicles that had uh, M50s on them. Anyways, he is one of those guys that uh, was chased by the, the, the Chinese. <laughs> and all things that I strongly believe the other thing that he went through in the Korean War affected him the rest of his life. And shell of man. I mean, he had a lot of good things about him, but a father that I never could communicate or talk to. So, and he had a lot of pain and suffering. And uh, needless to say, it, it, uh, it passed on to, to me, my brothers in particular, my older brother and myself. And uh, I don't know. People don't realize what war does to a human being <clears throat> until you experience it, especially if you survive it. <laughs> Anyways. One of these days, I'll look and see. I think my bro- my father was in the second division. Both of them were in the in the army. If you pay attention, I think to the history about Korea, I never really talked too much about the army. 
talk a lot more about the Marine Corps. World History Connected. The Jesuits in Korea, Influence Without Presence. Franklin D. Rauch. Studies on the Society of Jesus in East Asia tend to focus on China and Japan. There is a good reason for this. The Jesuits were not present or active in significant numbers in Korea until after the Korean War. It was during the Korean War was from 1950 to 1953. However, this article will show that despite not being physically present in Korea, Jesuits had a significant influence in Korea through their, quote, apostleship of the pen, end quote. Korean scholars were exposed to European culture, science, and technology through Jesuit texts written in classical Chinese. The reading language of Koreans or Korea's education, educated elite, excuse me. Moreover, Jesuit authored books introduced Catholicism to one group of Korean scholars, one of whom went to China to receive baptism. He then returned home and began baptizing others, leading to the establishment of a Catholic community in the Korean Peninsula before missionary work began there. While the Catholic missionaries who did travel to Korea in the early 19th century were not Jesuits, books by members of that order would continue to be read and copied by Koreans helping to sustain the infant church during the many persecutions it, it suffered. Even once the period uh, the persecution was over, the image of the still absent Jesuits shaped how Protestant missionaries understood the history of Christianity in Korea and spurred their own efforts. Today, the province of the Society of Jesus has been established on the peninsula with Jesuits focusing on educational and social work. Imagine that. Educational social work. That's how they infiltrate all countries. That's the reason why you and I live in a Jesuit-run Roman Catholic country. Say it's a Christian country, but when you look who's in control of the politics, your education system, even the banking, they control the Jews. If you look at the front group, they get all the blame, but the Jesuits are right behind manipulating them. Very interesting. Then again, there's also that element about Jesuits too, where many of them are, I guess, what they call crypto Jews. I don't know. It's a very complex issue when we're talking about the mystery Babylon. The apostolate, of the apostolate of the pen. The Jesuits first came to East Asia in the middle of the 16th century when they accompanied Portuguese traders to Japan. They conducted missionary work in that country and converted a large number of the samurai. Many of those Catholic samurai took part in the 1592 invasion of Korea 
launched by, oh, here we go, Tokoyomi Hideyoshi, something like that, from 1536 to 1598. The general who had united much of, the, of Japan after the two centuries of civil war. While some Jesuits did come to Korea in the wake of the invasion, they focused on seeing the pastoral needs of the Japanese Christians, quote-unquote Christians there, we used to call them Japanese Catholics, um, not on evangelizing Koreans, However, as the invasion wound down and Hedayushi was forced to withdraw, Jesuits and their Japanese co-workers did conduct missionary work among the Koreans who were taken hostage back to Japan. These Koreans established a thriving Catholic congregation in 1610 when they built and dedicated a parish to St. Lawrence. Koreans, like their Japanese co-religionists, would suffer martyrdom and violent suppression in the 17th century. Nine of the 205 martyr saints of Japan are ethnic Koreans, and of those nine, two were Jesuit brothers. While there was an attempt to prepare some Korean Catholics to return to their homes and carry out Missions, mission work there, the suppression of Catholicism in Japan put an end to such ambitions. This meant that it would be from China to the Korean Catholic community uh, would trace its roots. First, the efforts of Chinese Christians, once again quotes, and we go back to kind of Catholics, to gain a foothold in uh, Korea were initiated by Paul Hus, oh gosh, Gong Ki in 1562 to 1633. Matt Theo Ricci's 1552 to 1610 famous convert and high government official interesting name, Ricci. Facing growing threats from the uh, Manchus in the north, the Chinese uh, Dim Dynasty in 1368 to 1644, that's a pretty long dinosaur, sought aid from uh, Choson, Korea. Paul requested to be sent to Korea in order to help negotiate an alliance. And while he hoped to spread Catholicism, his plan came to naught as a different non-Catholic official was chosen instead. Another attempt to introduce Catholicism to Korea came later, and after the Manchu-controlled Qing dynasty of China overcame Korean resistance to its imperial aspirations. <clears throat> Interesting how these groups all want to have their imperial aspirations. 
once again, it's really easy just to say it's all about the Jesuits, but it's more than just the Jesuits. It's all these different groups of vying for power at the expense of the rest of us. But it's still relevant in our lives because, yes, we do live in a Jesuit-run country. And we are part of the Western world. Therefore, we are part of the Roman Empire. We are, by default, not even by default, by reality, <laughs> under the influence and control of Roman Catholicism, in particular to the Jesuits. <clears throat> You may ask yourself, what does this have anything to do with the Korean War? Well, as we started out here, thanks to the Korean War, finally the Jesuits were able to establish a foothold in South Korea. All right. Where are we at here? Another attempt to introduce Catholicism in Korea came later. Okay, yeah, we do, 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 do. Okay. Uh, the, the prince, let's see where it can go from here. Rochelle wanted the prince. I uh, missed that now. I missed my place. One of these crown prince, uh, Shoyan, 1612 to 1645, took an interest in Western science and befriended the Jesuit father, Adam Shaw, in 1592 and 1660 through 1666. There's that number again. When he was finally allowed to return to Korea, he brought with him books from both Western science and Catholicism. Shaw wanted the prince um, to bring Catholic religious paintings, but Shoyan uh, declined to accept them, saying that they might not receive the respect they deserved, perhaps because they appear to Buddhists and therefore were something that the staunchly neo-Confucius Choson state would have looked uh, ask us at. The prince invited Shaw to come along with him, but the missionary declined, stating that he did not have the time to travel to Korea Instead, he sent several Catholic eunuchs and court ladies. <laughs> ah, I didn't know that. Did you know that, that Catholics had eunuchs? <laughs> Do they still have eunuchs? Officially, at least. Mm. Mm-hmm. thought it was just back in the Bible days. The prince invited Shaul to come along with him but the missionaries declined stating that he did not have okay okay, okay eunuchs. However, the Sho So Yon would die of illness only two months after returning from China and all but one of the Catholic party was to be sent back to China, effectively ending any Catholic influence for the time being. Paul Hus became interested in Catholicism because of the reputation Jesuit missionaries had as scholars, and they are very brilliant men. Um, it would be fascinating. Uh, I wish I could play the audio, but there's one guy who's a Jesuit from actually Detroit who helped create the, uh, what was 
yeah, the atom bomb. He, um, brilliant guy, brilliant guy. He's the one who helped actually establish the very first radio station. It was a commercial radio station, I guess, that came out of Detroit. The very first radio that the, the police ever used was here in my, my town of Toledo, believe it or not, from this guy. Um, he ended up going to uh, St. Louis there, um, the, the university in St. Louis, uh, the Jesuit school. He was recruited because of his brilliance. He went to school for two years where he got himself, himself to when you go to be educated as, an, as a Jesuit, usually you have two degrees you go into, two disciplines. Of course, the, the theology is usually one of them. And then for this gentleman, he used, he wanted uh, geology. And he was sent to India. And, of course, there he did, he was connected with uh, Gandhi and helped with that. Of course, the Jesuits were really good with uh, starting social unrest and revolutions and all that. And he was <laughs> actually Gandhi. He lived with Gandhi for a year. Um, and then, um, but then he, they told during the war to come back. And at that time, it was pretty difficult for him. As a Jesuit priest, he had hooked up with a nun and had a couple kids. Of course, he wasn't married. But, and of course, you're not supposed to be doing that as a Jesuit priest. But, you know, there you go. Um, Par for course. Um, so he ended up having a couple daughters that he was forced to leave by the church, come back to the States, where he spent the, until his dying days, which he died from the beryllium that he was exposed to for 30-plus years. Um uh, I can't remember the call it, some kind of lung disease, beryllium, something, tuberculosis, I don't know now. But, um, and by the way, you could hear this interview on Think or Be Beaten on the grassy knoll, and you can find that episode. Um, but it's very difficult to read, it's really it's a bad recording, so I'm rephrase it, it wasn't difficult to read, it was difficult, difficult to hear because it was a bad recording. But anyways, so here we go. Uh, Jesuits, Jesuits, Jesuits. And people say, oh, they're harmless. But no, they are a military uh, arm of uh, Rome. And they've managed not only to be the military arm of Rome, they've managed to take over the Vatican. <laughs> These are guys you don't mess with. Anyways, where was I at with all this before I got distracted? Okay, yeah, okay. So, uh, Jesuit Matteo Ricci had actively sought to build an image by publicizing through books and personal meetings his knowledge of mathematics and clocks as well as his memory techniques, which were much in demand by aspiring scholars who hoped they would give them an edge in passing the exams necessary to become government officials. Astronomy was the particular significance in the missionary strategy. Ricci and other Jesuits hoped their knowledge of the heavens would convince the Chinese that they were 
also write about the existence of, quote, the Lord of Heaven, end of quote. The name they used for God, astronomy, was very important in the Chinese Empire, as knowledge of heavenly movements was necessary for the production of an accurate calendar and the prediction of eclipses and comets, or not comets, com- comets, like, you know, flying in the sky comets. Um, a dynasty that could do these things could claim that it was in harmony with the cosmos. <laughs> now you know where you get that from. Uh, and therefore uh, possessed the mandate of heaven. Conversely, failure to predict such astronomical phenomenon would lead to them being um, interpreted as heavenly warnings against government and morality, and thus as evidence that the dynasty was losing the mandate of heaven, which might lead to rebellion, rebellions against the government. Since astronomy was of such importance, the Chinese court, after witnessing Jesuit's astronomical skill, had quickly offered members of the society court positions. Interesting how they <laughs> this is how they one of the many ways they get uh, involved or become part of a court position or in politics. <laughs> Look, <laughs> it's fascinating. They really are running the federal government at this point, and also the judicial uh, judiciary, and also the uh, banking, and also the legislative, <laughs> and of course, once again, Pope. Uh, Francis, and Jesuit, is coming in on September the 23rd, and the uh, autumn equinox uh, to address, no, actually the 24th, to address um, both Senate and Congress for the first time ever, a joint session of Congress, which to demonstrate, basically, that he's the one really in charge. <laughs> Fascinating. It's just fascinating the times that we live in. And most people don't even recognize the reality of it. And let's get back to this. And they probably won't. They'll be waiting for, I guess, a meteor or something. Uh, but don't be don't be fooled at all uh, that if you think that something negative won't happen after he leaves, uh, highly unlikely. If something does happen while he's here, my guess my guess would be it would revolve around the UN. It won't have anything to do with this country. Remember they're aspiring for a one world order. The symbol of the one world order for humanity is the UN creation from Rome. All right. And by the way, if you think about uh, uh, the Korean War and how it was the very first war used, but which UN was involved and was used. Interesting. And a complete fa- well, it wasn't really a complete failure, but it wasn't. It all depends on how you look at it. If you look at it because of what how it opened up, basically. It wasn't a, a complete failure as far as the true goal. The true goal was to put a 
and allow the Jesuits in Rome to have a foothold in Rome, or not in Rome, in um, Korea, and they did that. So <laughs> it wasn't a complete disaster at all. Once you realize what the real purpose of the war was, and until you can accept that, you will never, it won't make any sense. And the end of it would be, uh, okay, let's see where he said. Okay, yeah. Uh, the prestige of such government recognition gave the Jesuits guarantee that their writings, both scientific and religious, would gain a ready audience. In the end, it would be these Jesuits' writings that would attract the attention of Korean scholars, leading to the establishment of the Catholic Church in Korea. It was through Korean on the traveling to China on tribute missions that Koreans first uh, came to contact with the Jesuits and their scholarly works. And that's what they do. That's how that's, it's, that's their brilliance is they, they, they take over through their education system. Not through their religion, because most people, <laughs> most of the world has a hard time buying into their religion. Uh, and even those people that are part of it, and that's the reason why we had a Reformation, is that even those people that are part of it, once they read the Bible, they start realizing that Roman Catholicism and what the Bible says are two different things. So that's just the reality. That's not me picking on Roman Catholicism. It's just the truth. <laughs> it just is. Anybody seriously studies the Bible with an open mind and looks at it and says, you know, what does it say uh, compared to what my church says? It, you'll find there are some drastic differences um, in what the church is saying, the priestcraft, priestcraft is saying, and what the actual Bible is saying. That's not just the Roman Catholic Church, by the way. It is uh, somebody who grew up a Mormon. It's obviously that was going on at the Mormon Church. And you'll find the most of the... Uh, the Roman Romans Catholic daughter churches uh, to be the same case. So, anyways, but once again, religion is what war is about. It's you know, it's it's bankers that profiteer from it, and the people that wage the wars is all about money. But the true goal behind it all always is and the ultimate goal is not about making money religion and has always been the way. It's a very important aspect even in 2015 and the control of the masses. And it just doesn't matter if you believe in their religion or not. What matters is that they are the ones in charge. <clears throat> we'll figure out a way to mess with your mind through mind control, manipulation of your thoughts, believing in the um, superstitions and fables. And being disconnected to your reality. Anyways, where are we at with all this? Okay. Um, yes. So the Korean chosen state, a tributary country that accepted the overlordship of the Ming and later Qing and empires, regularly sent missions to. Uh, China to report on important events in Korea, uh, offer congratulations, condolences, 
um, as the situation called for and reaffirmed its loyalty to the emperor. By engaging in such missions, Korea was able to maintain its independence. It was difficult to justify attacking a Confucian government that posed no threat or officially recognized imperial authority, engage in some legitimate trade, and obtain the most recent news and scholarship from the emperor. The importance of such missions can be seen in the fact that between the years 1637 to 1783, 167 of them were sent from Seoul to Beijing. One Korean scholar, Yi Sung Wang, 1563-1628, who visited Ming China in this way three times from 1590, 1597, and 1611, returned to Korea with many books including Ricci's True Meaning of the Lord of Heaven, as well as his famous map of the world in his own writings um, about these missions, he refers to the Pope and Ricci's books on friendly terms. In 1720, another Korean envoy and scholar Yi M. Yong, uh, 1658 to 1722, went on a mission to congratulate Emperor Quinlong on his enthronement. While in Beijing, Beijing, he made friends with priests from the Astronomy Bureau, including Jesuit Father Ignaz Kolod, or Kogler. That's from 16 something, 1680 something to 1746. When he returned to Korea, uh, Ein Young not only brought back books on Western astronomy, uh, geography, and law, but also continued to write letters to his Jesuit friends. After the destructive Japanese invasion in the 1590s and the Quinn campaign to subjugate Korea in 1627 and 1636, many Korean scholars began looking for practical knowledge that would help their country recover economically and socially. Isn't it amazing that war is just pervasive in humanity? It just it just seems like just about you and you're a lucky gener you live in a very lucky generation if you're not subjected to it. It's more it's necessary for these empires and the rulers whether there's bankers, religion, the papacy, uh, whatever. Now we're not even talking about the papacy. We're talking about this Confucian religion and their priest class and their emperors and their empires and how necessary it is for them to constantly wage war. Now we know we can go back now and look at the New Testament and why Satan tempted our Lord Savior <laughs> with uh, uh, all the kingdoms of the world because uh, Satan runs them. There's no, there's no other explanation for it. And this is the reason why man, humanity is mad. 
It's absolutely crazy without God. And what man can do without God is this, war, deception, lies. Interesting, too, by the way, when now we're talking about is they're coming to share this information with the uh, Asian and Chinese and the Korean and Japanese about the astronomy, they're also starting to share with them the heliocentric model, which even at this day of 2015, if one takes an honest look at it, which is a hard pill to swallow, I understand. And you're talking to a guy he was 47 years old. It's only this year that I'm starting to realize that everything that I was taught in my Jesuit education, and yes, I didn't go to, or no, excuse me, I didn't go to a Jesuit high school or college uh, per se, you know, but in the end, I actually did. The Jesuits through the free my Freemason public school system uh, education, uh, teaching basically the same BS as in, in a lower, more dumbed down form. And here I am, 47 years old, finally realizing that maybe everything that I was told about the heliocentric model uh, is not well. Of course, put this way, it's not based on anything but theory at this point which is a hard pill to swallow. And I understand why most people would say, ah, you're full of it. For I was that person too, so. So anyway, so we're back to this. Many Koreans were therefore receptive to Western science presented in Jesuit books, for instance, the hydraulic method of the Great West, written by an Italian Jesuit, was uh, praised by Yi Ik. And 
when they allow emperors and popes and CEOs of corporate states like the United States and Obama, he's the president, but, you know, we find presidents and corporations. We don't even have enough sense to even see that. (laughs) We're some confused people. And I'm not much better than anybody else. Anyways, Western knowledge was debated actively by them. Works on astronomy proved to be the particular interest in Korea as the chosen state, chosen, chosen state is an interesting, wanted to develop its own calendar and accurately predict the appearance of comets and eclipses. Koreans were motivated to do this because Seoul was located at a different latitude than Beijing, so the official calendar used by China was not accurate for Korea. However, Chosun, as a tributary state, was not supposed to create its own calendar. Sounds like being a member of the Roman Empire, isn't it? (laughs) Their sun calendar, the Gregorian calendar that we're all (laughs) imposed upon. Uh, as the privilege belonged to the Chinese emperor alone. And then, of course, the Roman Empire emperor would be the Pope. Mm-hmm. This prompted Koreans, beginning with Kong Tuan, to secretly obtain Western astronomical knowledge through books and by bribing officials and the calendar and the calendar bureau, including the Jesuit priest Adam Shaw himself. <clears throat> oh. While Koreans did appreciate the advanced techniques of Western science made available, like most Chinese, they did not accept the Jesuit argument that Western knowledge proved that the missionaries' cosmological assertions about the Creator God had any merit. For instance, Hong Taeyong in 1731 through 1783, and an advocate of the Northern Learning, which held the Koreans should held that the Koreans should look to uh, King. China owning to its wealth and power for models to reform went on a tribute mission in 1765 and met with the Jesuit father Ferdinand August von Hollerstein in 1703 to 1774 at the Southern Cathedral while Hong was informed okay, while Hong was very interested in the knowledge pertaining to the advanced technology the priest had, he rejected his religion as barbarous and Buddhist. Hmm. Even though Yi Ayung or I'm young who was a tribute mission was on a tribute mission in seventeen twenty five to inform the Chinese emperor 
of the death of King Suk Kong. In 16, he was born in 1674 to 1720, was impressed with the calorandic knowledge of the Catholic priest and was even willing to recognize Catholic morality as similar to Confucianism. Confucianism. I can say Confucianism. <laughs> Confucianism. That's what it is. Confucianism. And therefore, superior to Buddhism and Taoism, he still rejected Catholicism and criticized such Catholic teachings as the Incarnation, Heaven, and Hell. Even the uh, radical uh, Northern Learning Scholar Peck Chi who went on a tribute mission in 1778, wanted Catholic priests to come to Korea and share their advanced astronomical knowledge, insisted on a ban on them carrying out missionary work. Thus, the best Catholics could do at this time was to win admiration for their scientific knowledge and some grudging respect for their morality. However, they were unable to convince even radical scholars such as Pack to develop or depart from their essential neo-Confucian worldview, which because of its vision of the universe as being governed by a self-contained cosmic pattern and consequent rationalistic view of reality, rejected and rejection of miracles had no room for a God that had created the universe and actively intervened in it. Although the Catholic theology at first failed to win converse in Korea, the idea of using Western scientific knowledge to prove the veracity of the Catholic teachings had some success. Jesuit authored books on the Western or science included references to God and Catholicism and respect for scientific knowledge won a continued readership for those works. The Jesuits also produced Catholic doctrinal books that drew upon Confucian philosophy to make a case for the Catholic faith. Isn't it amazing how religion, even to this day, whether they don't they, they hide it now, you don't see it as prevalent as it used to be, it's still prevalent. It's amazing. Religion has always been the issue, the driving force behind all the problems of our lives. Now, when I say religion, don't get me wrong, because it's, that also concludes the, the religion of the state and many other religions. So. In other words, it comes down to if you don't believe what I believe, then we're going to put a bolt in your head or we're going to kill you or throw you in jail. You either believe the way I believe or, or that's it. That's the history of man. These works took uh, the descriptions on an anthro, um, anthropomorphic heaven that appeared in the ancient classics to argue that the originally Confucians had been theists. This allowed the missionaries to assert that Neo-Confucianism 
with its non-theistic cosmology that understood such passages to be symbolic had actually departed from the Confucian way and that the Catholicism was therefore the fulfillment of true Confucianism. <laughs> Anything to make a convert, make a buck out of it. Um, Matteo Ricci pioneered this approach in his true meaning of the Lord of Heaven, first published in 1603 in his work, Ricci quoted at Confucian Classics, uh, to argue that a true Confucian ought to be a Catholic. He did so by focusing on morality and playing down the more supernatural aspects of Catholicism. Thus, while Ricci sought to prove from reason that God and eternal soul existed, he scarcely mentioned the doctrine of the Trinity, the crucifixion, resurrection, and the nature and importance of sacrament. Okay, yeah. Yeah, see? <laughs> a fine example of why Catholicism is not Christianity. Just avoid all the basic tenets of Christianity. <laughs> Thus, while Ricci sought to prove from reason that God and eternal soul existed, he scarcely mentioned the doctrine of the Trinity. Okay, we just read that. This was because the true meaning was intended as an introductory text only, Rishi wanted to show the foundations of Catholicism according with human reason and confusion. Confucian uh, ethics before discussing those supernatural elements of the faith based on Christian revelation that would have been more difficult for Confucian scholars to accept. This book was widely read, though most Confucian scholars criticized its arguments and rejected Catholicism out of hand. Ricci, this Ricci name, then, you know, then the same guy who brought us uh, the art of war, I think, well, at least he had the same last name, and then you got Lorenzo Ricci, who was the Jesuit president of uh, uh, General, the Jesuit general who ended up coming to this, what we know, well, 13 colonies at the time to help create the United States of America. My goodness, what is this Ricci? It must be a real powerful uh, family line. Knowing hmm. the rationalistic tendencies of many neo Confucian scholars and avoided discussion of the true uh, meaning of those aspects of Christian theology or <laughs> that they might see as superstitious, that does not mean that the Jesuits or even Ricci and the other works never discussed the supernatural. For instance, one Spanish, Spanish Jesuit, Father Dides de Pantoja, sought to, to interest people in Catholicism by promising health and moral cultivation, a primary occupation of Confucian gentlemen. In his book, uh, The Seven Victories, uh, Petoja 
I told you, described how seven virtues could be used to overcome seven deadly sins. Oh, isn't that interesting? And, of course, you hear that all the time, don't you, in this society? Well, I don't know if you do all the time, but if you were somebody like me, Alcoholics Anonymous, when I was actively in that, the uh, cult of not drinking, they used that. I gave uh, practical advice on moral self-improvement, only to find out later that it really doesn't do anything with me. His work differed from Ricci's true meaning in that it did not shy away from the supernatural. For example, the section on chastity, (laughs) conquering lust, and yeah, of course, Jezebus are the finest example of that, aren't they? Contains a story in which Saint uh, Cecilia convinced her husband through the help of an angel that they should live together in perpetual as perpetual virgins. My gosh! <laughs> Another story: a man who had married to please his parents, um, but lived with his wife as a perpetual virgin, went on, went to the monastery where his mere presence drove out a demon and that whole, that a holy monk was unable to exercise. Interesting, going back to that gentleman from Detroit, and I can't think of his name right now, I'm sorry, it's like McQueen's or McKinsey or something like that. I'm not giving the right name. Um, when he was in India as a Jesuit priest over there, and he, you know, he ended up getting sick and hooking up with this nun. And when you look at India and this culture and the, and the caste system and the lower caste, uh, it looks like many of these uh, women, single women, they end up being nuns in India and or becoming like housemates and. Uh, I guess it's of of the two choices, many even chose to become nuns because it was a safer gig. Uh, Less likely to be uh, be set in fire or whatever, be raped numerously. uh, Which is really weird because how many times Catholic priests and Jesuit priests rape nuns is just overwhelming. So I guess must have been even worse under the Hindu the uh the Hindus, right? <clears throat> However, and that's what they wanted for this new world order is the blending of all these wicked religions and just oh gosh, they wanted to send us back into the dark ages. Uh, so anyway, so we can move on here. So reaching for efforts. So I think we got the point here that they are using this whole idea of trying, you know, science and trying to basically manipulate the um, the royalty and the elites and the intellectuals and all that, and the scholars of uh, China and um, Korea uh, through um, education, through knowledge, through science. Yeah. You think they might have done that to us as well? I'll put my money on that one. Um, So anyways, even without the ban on ancestor rights, um, 
there is a reason to believe that the persecution would still have been the fate of Catholic communities Korea. And of course, I'm not talking, I'm not talking this is still prior to the Korean War. Um, I don't know if I want to read all that or not. However, the Catholic condemnation of ancestor rights likely did play a role in intensifying the persecution that took place and the lives of thousands of Catholics between 
the other monkish orders from Ferenc Harris, which had opposed the Society of Jesus during the, Ch- the Chinese Rite co- uh, controversy, not the Jesuits who actually working in Korea at, at all at the time. By the way, you can see the same type of history that goes on, you know, the same thing. You have the, the, the Franciscans and, um, oh gosh, the other ones again, Dominicans. They show up first, not the Jesuits. Jesuits show up later. And North America is a fine example of South, South America as well. And people will say, well, the Jesuits weren't even formed until the 15th something. Well, yeah, we're talking now the 1700s. This is what they do. They send, and, and you see this perfectly happening in, in the, the uh, evangelical church now with all these Franciscan monks and even Dominican monks and teaching the spiritual formation and contemplative prayer. This is how they they start. And then they bring in the big boys. Because the big boys, you know what? They know. They're the ones that took over the, the Inquisition. And they didn't understand the art of war. Um, so it's actually it was interesting as they used the Franciscans and the Dominicans to soften up the people, and then they bring in the big big guns to the Jesuits to thoroughly take them over. So, anyway, you can go on and read more about this. I'm I'm getting a little tired. Uh, the conclusion, we'll just read the conclusion here. Um, it's very interesting, the whole religious aspect that's going on, this religious war, and how Christendom, if you will, Catholicism, intricate part of why. We know, we're not taught this in public school, and we're actually taught to poo-hoo it make it so little is insignificant. No, really, it's about the bankers, about all this. We keep on forgetting that the bankers and the politicians and the lawyers and all that, well, their first, many of them, their first allegiance is to their religion. It's not actually to their money. Money motivates them, absolutely. Many of them are. That's what their first motivation is. But they also recognize that the reason why they're in positions they're in is because of the religion that they're in. And if you want to be a success in this country, a truly successful, it's not Freemasonry, per se. It's a Jesuit education and being uh, affiliated, associated with the Jesuits or Roman Catholicism. It really is. It makes a big difference. Now, people say, well, I know this person who's a Baptist, and he does a great job. He makes a good living. Yeah, he does, but he's not one of the big boys. That's the reason why when you read the headlines on Yahoo.com, you never hear anything about the Baptists. What you hear about is the Jesuits and the Roman Catholics. They dominate the headline news. They dominate everything. But most people don't want to look at reality. Conclusion, the Jesuit formally came to Korea... At so here's here's the here's the success, the goal, the true accomplishment of the Korean War. Conclusion: The Jesuits formally came 
to a Korea as a corporate body in 1955 when the Wisconsin province of the Society of Jesus isn't that interesting Wisconsin province was invited to establish there a Catholic institution for higher learning Sogang University Father Theodore and Gephardt a German Jesuit working in Japan was given the task of acquiring land for the new institution, which opened in 1962. This institution quickly expanded, and by the spring of 2012 had more than 11,000 undergraduates and nearly 4,000 graduate students. That's quite a bit of Jesuits. Served by more than 400 full-time faculty members, the current president of Korea, the first woman to hold the office, Park Gwen Hai, graduated from Songgang University with a degree in electrical engineering. Another indication of Songgang prestige is that when the secular newspaper, uh, the chosen Inbo, wanted to explain to non-Catholics what the Jesuits were in its coverage of the election of Pope Francis I, the first Jesuit to hold the office, it pointed to Songgang University as the point of reference. It should also be noted that Songgang University maintains an institution for the studies of religion, which publishes the only English-language journal dedicated to the study of Korean religion, the Journal of Korean Religion. Thirty Jesuits are attached to Song Gang in various capacities. Uh, As of spring 2013, 189 Jesuits, including priests, scholastic brothers, are listed as part of the Jesuit Korean province. Of these, 152 are in Korea or in Cambodia, the provinces assigned mission, with the remaining 37 serving other provinces. For instance, the Korean parishes of, in China and the United States. The Jesuits of Korea also devote much time to social justice work. And I can guarantee you, like this whole thing about the supposedly uh, abuse of that black girl in that pool party where they broke into the pool and were messing with other people and it was neighbors that called the police because of the rowdiness and this is the same black girl that just previously uh, beat up some old lady (laughs) oh she's a sweet thing but she's a girl and she's got oh my gosh I guarantee you that the Jesuits are all part of that Social justice movement. You got the Jesuit chain trained Jesse Jackson, who, if you were listening to that at all during this or go back to this recording, and his involvement with uh, setting up Bob Dumas, he had an opportunity to go to North Korea to try to uh, work out a deal to, to release the POWs, and Jesse Jackson sabotaged it. See, this has nothing to do with black or white. This has everything to do with 
who is your master? But most people, in their simplistic simplistic way of seeing the world, and because we have all been brainwashed into racist thinking, one way or the other, white, black, Indian, Native American, it doesn't matter who you are. Um, it's such an easy tool to use for the work of simpletons. Simpletons, I, that sounds like white pompous on my part, but the truth of the matter is you are thinking very simplistic if you're seeing the world black and white. <laughs> or somehow you're different than anybody with the color of your skin. It has nothing to do with that. It goes back to all these ruling classes and the empires that you are part of or live in and how they manipulate you. They want you to be fighting with me and never to figure out who actually is running the show because if you actually figured out who's running the show and you know who to actually protest against and who to fight. But since most people have no clue, they think it's the bankers or it's the government or they think it's the Republican Democrats or it's even Roman Catholics and or Protestants when in reality... It's this ruling elite that comes out of Western Europe, its bloodlines, and the Jesuits and their military knights of, and their knight orders. So, but because people don't want to deal with that, and they want to think about it because it's too much to think. There's really too much to think. They just want nothing. Nothing will change. So, I guess you can play their game if you want. If it makes you feel important. Okay, the Jesuits in Korea also devoted much time to social justice. For instance, the Catholic Church, in part through the Jesuits, has played an important part in advocate as advocates for the poor during the urban redevelopment programs. <laughs> oh shoot! And it always leads to people still being poor, though. They just have a little more food on their plate. Or maybe they get a toaster or refrigerator. One Jesuit while studying the sociology in Sagong, uh, Father Park, monsoon-born Francis X. Buckmeyer, he took a Korean name and a Korean citizenship, wrote a, pa- wrote a, wrote a papers on, wrote papers on such efforts. While conducting research in Korea in 2009, excuse me, I had an opportunity to see the Jesuits in action in this very issue. In January that year, several protesters and a policeman died in a fire related to the tenants' protest against the urban development, which they asserted benefited the wealthy at their expense. A Mary Noel priest, Father Ross uh, Feldmar, took me to the site where the Catholic Priests Association of Justice, along with uh, some Jesuits and some Dicean priests, had set up a headquarters to support the protesters offering Mass each day. Father Park officiated in the Mass that day I visited. 
the gospel reading from the mass from the mass for that day was from the fifth chapter of the gospel of Matthew, in which Jesus enjoins people to love their enemies and to pray for those who persecute them. And a difficult reading to preach, uh, considering that the wives of the protesters who died were in the audience. Yet, in his homily, Father Park managed to capture the significance of those words, calling for love and forgiveness, while also encouraging people to respectfully continue struggling for what they thought was right and just. Such participation in society continues uh, as of this writing, Jesuits are active, in the protests against the establishment of an American military base <laughs> in Chiyung Island. Thus, it can be said that since the beginning of the early 17th century, the Jesuits have played a role in Korea, exposing Koreans to Western science, technology, and helping to build the Catholic community that survived concentrated attempts to work it out and continues to be a vital part of the Korean society today. Franklin D. Roche, assistant professor of history of, at Water University, Greenwood, South Carolina, he currently is conducting research on religion and violence in the late Chosen Dynasty, Korea, and has published several articles on that subject in the church-state relations, etc., 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 Action Korean Journal and, uh, Korean Religion etc. Okay. So anyways, what I'm seeing is the persons they they one group that gained benefit the most from the Korean War turned out to be uh the Roman Catholic Church and particularly the Jesuits. And now they have a president. Imagine that. We have a Jesuit president too, did you know that? Obama. He was trained by the Jesuits. And um, as far as this, you know, social justice thing, you keep hearing over and over again, it's just social justice. But they're not really interested in your social justice. They just want to pacify you and accept your injustice that you're under. So, as you see, nothing really changes, right? Now the rich keep getting richer. Seems to be their job. Is that one of their jobs is to allow the rich to keep on getting richer. And that enriches them too. I wonder if it's even, even really at this point even to serve the papacy. Mm. So I don't know. What a wacky world we live in. Uh, uh, interesting talks you guys. Yeah, thanks. Well, that's that. So if you want to listen to the rest of this recording. You can go back, and she has some uh, very interesting things, I think. In particular, um, we can look at, you can listen to or watch the video, Missing, uh, what is that again? What's the name of that? I'm going to get back to looking at it. Okay, let's see. And Missing, Presumed Dead is a documentary that was produced in 2005 um, that talks about what happened to the, well, 
how this government, this Jesuit control of one government, abandoned all those boys over in Korea, also in Vietnam in World War II. That's actually over 90,000 soldiers missing in action. And they knew there were still boys over there and they left them there. You might want to ask yourself the question why that is. Also, then you can see the interview or listen to the interview with um, Keith Hansen interviewing Bob um, Dumas. I don't know if Bob is still alive or not, but yeah, I would have to argue if I put my money on a true patriot, a true hero, Bob is one of them. Uh, his story is very fascinating. I strongly suggest you learn more about him because he really has done, did some amazing things. Uh, did he, in the end of the day, accomplish getting the boys out of um, Korea or Vietnam? No, but he exposed the, justice, the injustice. And he, one man show, took on the government. Years and years and years. Five, was it four or five years taking on the government, taking on the legal system when people, nobody else was willing to do it? I believe he's a Roman Catholic, too. <laughs> just just going to show it has nothing to do with Roman Catholics, per se. It has nothing to do with the hierarchy. And then when I talk about Roman Catholics, but doesn't we have to Remember, that's their religion. Most people, that's their religion. They believe they're doing the right thing. But they had a hierarchy, whether it's Roman Catholics, the Baptists, or the Confucians, or the, whoever it may be, they exploit all of us. They take advantage of everybody. We need to have compassion and understanding for all of each other. We want to really have some social justice. Let's put the blame on where the blame should be. Those of Those people, those groups who have been manipulating us all along through the education system, through the banking system, through the health system, through the, uh, et cetera. So, anyways, God bless and take care. Let's say, what's Mr. Say here? Uh, I have, I have to go. The thanks. This has been a, a good one. Also, I wrote down some good notes, Andrew. Okay, Andrew. Cool. Very cool. All right. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.